With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned. Everywhere is war. Today marks 40 years since the death of the reggae legend Bob Marley. He died of cancer at the age of 36. Marley's career had begun in his native Jamaica, but the last decade of his life was divided between there and Britain. Our arts correspondent Vincent Dowd spoke to two people who met Bob Marley there in the 1970s. People love good music. You know, and if you're playing good music, people can dig it. As long as it's nice, then they're going to dig it. In May 1973, Bob Marley and the Whalers taped music for the BBC TV programme, The Old Grey Whistle Test. They'd been signed by Island Records, the company the young Trevor Wyatt was about to join in London. They came and did a tour, so they rehearsed at the offices in Chiswick. That was the first time I really came sort of close to him. Marley and Island Records boss Chris Blackwell decided a slightly different sound would bring more success worldwide, but some complained it took the whalers away from their roots. Trevor Wyatt doesn't agree. Chris saw the potential in Bob, one, because of his look and the band. They were like these young revolutionary kind of characters, you know. He had the vision himself, where he wanted to go with his messages and his, and his music. They just really meant it. They were the real thing. Chris felt that the rock crowd that was huge at the time in England, you know, buying LPs, albums, would go for it. Trevor Wyatt knew Bob Marley for the rest of his short life. 26 years I've been in South London in, in the Wolf Road. Whereas George Dyer, as a schoolboy, met him for just one day, a day never forgotten. I'm showing a jacket that's a three-button jacket. It was the beginning of the mod style back then. Today, George Dyer is a tailor in London. In 1972, he was a pupil at Peckham Manor Boys' School, whose music teacher, Mr Boff, had connections to reel in a visiting American star, Johnny Nash, 
and the soon-to-be-famous Bob Marley. Bob came to our school at Peckham Manor with Johnny Nash to do a mini-concert. Us West Indian boys, we knew a lot of Bob's early songs, and obviously when us boys saw, we gave a great big cheer, and the first tune that Bob and Johnny went into was Steer It Up. George Dyer says he sometimes felt pressure at school as a mixed-race pupil, but his encounter with Marley, who'd had a white father, gave him a new confidence. All I can remember him saying is menor, menor man. What I took that to mean was that because we were of a similar complexion, he knew what I'd been going through because he'd gone through a similar thing. How can I say, when he did speak, it meant volumes. Get up, stand up. Trevor Wyatt says the musicianship of Bob Marley still appeals. I mean, I DJ still, and every night people will come and say, can you play some Bob Marley? They want the hits. The albums still sell. There's been a recent documentary and a stage musical, Get Up Stand Up, opens in London this autumn. The sheer enjoyment of Bob Marley's music seems never to diminish. Vincent Dowd with that report. Hey, man, she'll be due. She'll be due. Then the handshake. And somebody would say, what does that mean? Oh, she'll be due, man. Get with it. You know, to oop to school. <laughs> now, these are people who are supposed to be intelligent. It's not a plan. For finding uranium on the moon. Mm-hmm. We're not scientific at all. Think about some of the most recognizable names in science. Newton, Einstein, Hawking, Bill Nye the Science Guy. All with similar ways of looking at the world and beyond to the stars. There aren't a lot of non-white men in physics and astronomy. Especially not a lot of black women. Well, enter Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She teaches physics and astronomy at the University of New Hampshire, and she's just written a book that explores the intersection of science and race. It's called The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. And Chanda Prescott-Weinstein joins me now. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Well, you grew up right here in Southern California in East L.A., And you write in your book that when you were 10 years old, you decided to become a theoretical physicist. How does a 10-year-old even know what a theoretical physicist is, much less want to be one? My mother, Margaret Prescott, took me to the Lemley Theater on the West Side to see a documentary about Stephen Hawking called A Brief History of Time. I didn't want to be at the movie theater. I thought documentaries were silly. I wanted to be watching X-Men cartoons. It was like a matinee on a Saturday morning. But halfway through the documentary, Hawking was talking about figuring out what happens at the center of black holes. 
And I was like, wait, that's a job. You can get paid for that. You can do math for a living, figure out things Einstein didn't know. And so I was pretty much sold at that point. So you walked out of that Lemley Theater that day and bent on a career in science. And did you ever think, oh, I can't do this or I won't be able to do it or I I don't want to do it? Or were you pretty much set that this was going to be your life? I was pretty set on it. I think the first challenge that I faced is I came out of the movie theater begging my mom for a copy of Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time. And she was basically like, yeah, but it's for adults. You might get confused. And I don't think at that point I had any sense of there are things that I can't do. And I have to credit my grandfather, Norman, for this. Um, He grew up a, a Dodger fan. And so I grew up a Dodger fan. And I remember asking him when I was about four years old, how come the only girls on the field are ball girls? How come there are no girls on the team? And he would always reassure me that by the time I was old enough to become a baseball player, which was my first love, that's what I wanted to do first was baseball player, that they would let women play baseball. So that turned out not quite to be the case, but I think he planted the seed early that if there was something I wanted to do, it was fine for me to want to do it and that I would be able to. So you never looked back. You went to Harvard and graduated in 2003, and you were the only black woman in America to earn a bachelor's degree in astrophysics that year? It seems that way. If you look at the National Science Foundation statistics, they might have missed someone, right? But we're talking very small numbers. It was either one or like two or three. Very small numbers. Why so small? I'm sure you you thought about that a lot. Have you come to any conclusions? I I, I think that not everybody has the same um, experience that I did of being encouraged in the ways that I did. I was very, very lucky. Um, Between the ages of 11 and 17, I only had two math teachers, and they were both people who spent a lot of time on me. And I think that a lot of people who don't have that kind of support or don't have that kind of background you know, it's easier to be like, well, I'm just going to go do something where I'm more encouraged, where I feel more supported. And I think the other thing is, is being a student at Harvard meant that I had resources and support that I might not have gotten at a lower resourced institution. And I think it's important to pay attention to that. Like the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, as it was known at the time, is one of the largest like non-NASA astrophysics research facilities in the country and one of the most renowned in the world. So I had access to all kinds of opportunities in astronomy that students at other schools don't get. Now, your book, as I described it in the introduction, is about the intersection between science and race. How do you see the intersection between the two? Um, How do you see racial issues as either being addressed or ignored in science and in particular in astrophysics? I think in general, the academy has a problem, right? So a lot of the things that I specifically say about science could probably apply more broadly. And as I think a really great case in point about this, you know, I went to high school in West LA, even though I was born and raised in East LA. And Harvard had several recruiters for the West Side, and they had one recruiter for all of the East Side and part of South Central, as it was known at the time. And that tells you a lot about where they think, you know, let's put this in air quotes, their kind of people are going to come from. And that's a completely racialized thing. Even though I'm Black, most of my community in East LA was uh, Chicano and more broadly like Latino. 
And so that says a lot about like who is even encouraged and welcome to come into these academic spaces. So that's already the one way in which like race, ethnicity, identity are shaping who ends up in, in certain types of, of academic spaces. And the idea, the general idea of science and science involving space in particular, is that something that, you know, given what you just said about Harvard's recruiting efforts in different parts of town, is that something that black people in general feel that they are not invited to participate in, that they are not a part of? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that when you actually look at the studies Black people, and generally speaking, people from underrepresented groups in science come into college with the same levels or higher interest in majoring in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But something happens during the first year of college that leads to people not staying in those majors. And I think this is a really important thing to highlight because one of the things that I hear a lot on my end as an academic is that fellow academics like to blame K through 12 teachers a lot for like not doing enough to get students involved in STEM, as we call it, for not doing outreach. But actually, we're the problem. And I hate saying we because I hope it's not actually me personally, right? But it's my community, fellow faculty that something's happening at, at the, the college level, that people actually are coming in and excited. And part of what I wanted to do with the disordered cosmos was speak to people who felt like they took an interest in physics and physics didn't take an interest in them. Because I think that's actually what's happening. There's this refrain that black people aren't interested in science but my experience talking to people about what I do um, totally blows that up. That's not the case. People are really excited about science. They feel like the scientific community is not excited about them or welcoming to them, except, you know, sometimes using black people for experiments, right? So we've been talking a lot recently about the Tuskegee experiment. And I think that it needs to be acknowledged that the distrust that comes out of like th these kinds of medical abuses um, sometimes doctors are the only scientists that people ever meet in their career. And so if they have a bad experience with a doctor, that can really speak to how they feel about who scientists can be to them. Yeah. And then there's the whole vaccine hesitancy as a result of that. And you can see the repercussions. You wrote a really interesting chapter that begins with your uh, visit to a doctor because of a vitamin D deficiency. And as you were speaking with the doctor, you had this kind of aha moment and you went down, a, I guess, a rabbit hole of the physics of skin color. What did you learn? Yeah, so I should say like part of what was actually interesting is that I had gone to the doctor about something completely different and um, he looked at me and was like, we should probably test your vitamin D levels while you're here. And I had, I had never really thought about it. The relationship between the sun and my skin. And so, yeah, I totally went down a rabbit hole. I, I approached for the first time my body as an object that merited exploration from the point of view of a physicist. And it continues to be, I would say, an emotional journey in the sense that I already had a PhD before I started asking like very basic questions about like, how does melanin work? It's an incredible biomolecule. <laughs> How does it work? 
How do we see like a darker skin color through light particles? Yeah, so the first thing to know is that actually there are different types of melanin. There's brown melanin, there's black melanin, and different people have different combinations of that. But molecules have a quantum structure to them. That means that certain uh, wavelengths of light can be absorbed based on their structure or emitted based on their structure. And that wavelength is associated with a color. So it's really the light bouncing onto the skin, interacting with the melanin, and then that's what determines what you see in terms of color. Yeah, so your skin is absorbing particles of light that we call photons. And the ones that don't get absorbed are the ones that are are bounced back to your eye. And so the colors that we see are determined by what's getting absorbed. And what's getting absorbed is determined by how much melanin you have in your skin and what type of melanin. Huh. I mean, it's so interesting when you put it this way, because when you talk about it in a scientific way, it strips out all the, the association, right? All the biases that are freighted with melanin and skin color in our society. And it just becomes a simple matter of science. And I think a lot of people look at science as something that is just neutral. Your book, though, is about how it's not neutral. So have you come to any conclusions as to when you consider all of these issues, how science and social discourse are perpetuated in our culture, how you view the utility of science? Like, what is it for and who is it for? I think at its best, science is a wonderful, deeply human mode of storytelling that we tell stories about the world in a way that's repeatedly verifiable. And um, we develop ideas that where we use falsification as a standard for how interested we are in those ideas. So at its best, I think science is us. Science is part of who we are. It's one of our activities. And I think it can inspire us to be at our best. For example, when we think about what would it mean to make sure that everybody has access to a dark night sky? And how could we transform society to make that possible? It requires rethinking public transportation. And I know things in Los Angeles are a lot better than when I left in fall of 1999. But like, you know, Los Angeles has never been famous for its amazing public transportation system, right? But what if people had access to affordable, um, efficient, energy efficient, clean public transportation that got them out to dark night skies? What if they had time for it? What if they had enough food and water so that they could sit and wonder under the night sky? So I think thinking about this question of accessing the night sky can really motivate us in a different way to think about how do we connect with this thing that our species has evolved under and that we have spent generations telling stories about. That's who we are. And so I think it can be a real reminder to stay in touch with what makes us human. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, her new book is called The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Chanda, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
George Washington, I don't know where the city of Washington is. I know where Banneker City is. I live near Banneker City. I don't know where no damn Washington is. The cicadas are coming. In some places, they're already starting to emerge from the ground. Billions of cicadas, in fact, that have been underground waiting for this moment for 17 years. People have been studying them for even longer. In fact, the 17-year cycle may first have been observed and documented by the naturalist Benjamin Banneker, a Maryland scientist, surveyor, and free black man, Born in 1731. Over the course of his life, he witnessed four 17-year cycles or broods of cicadas. He had not had really a formal education in the sciences, yet he was just very brilliant to understand that something different and phenomenal is going on. That's researcher Janet Barber. She published a paper with her husband, Asamoa Nkwanta, about Banneker's observations. It's amazing. I mean, you can see where he etches out mistakes or something he might want to change. Banneker's original handwritten document describing the cicadas in 1800 is at the Maryland Center for History and Culture in Baltimore. The Baltimore Sun recently featured Naquanta and Barber's work from 2014 describing the document and Banneker's observations. Observations that first started when he was 17. He began to look at them and wonder if they might destroy the earth, if they might uh, be some harm to us. And he realized uh, that they were not. And so that's where his fascination came and he began to study. He accurately predicted the next 17-year cycles. Four generations of cicadas later, Mr. Banneker was 68 and had been documenting the insects for half a century. Banneker's detailed observations also describe cicada behavior. The bugs are only above ground for a few weeks, which they spend mating and screaming. As Banneker put it, if their lives are short, they are merry, noting that, quote, they still continue singing till they die. If only we could all say the same. Naquanta and Barber hope that their research brings more attention to Banneker's work, which they say was largely ignored because he was black. There's a lot of stories about the cicada, but very seldom do you hear any mention of Benjamin Banneker connected to the discovery of the 17-year periodic cycle. Think of his discovery this way. It was underground for many, many years, but now his story is emerging. And the parent group has criticized a newly hired black administrator. In the private Facebook group, several questioned the new assistant principal's background. They called her former St. Louis public school awful, and the historically black college where she's a professor a complete joke. Well, Tennessee State University, the only public historically black college and university in the state of Tennessee, doesn't have to imagine this. From 1957 to 2007, Tennessee State University was underfunded year after year as the Tennessee State Legislature failed to allocate funds to the school as it's required to do so under a state law. And Tennessee State isn't the only HBCU missing out on state funds. To talk about all of this more, we're joined now by Andre Perry. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. I mean, Tennessee, you know, it's not the only state that owes money to HBCUs, as we just mentioned. Can you just give us a general sense of how pervasive this underfunding is of HBCUs? Well, since the 50s, since Brown v. Board, the federal government ordered um, states to desegregate their schools. And most people just think that occurred in the K-12 arena, but it also occurred for higher education institutions. 
And by the way, most HBCUs are in Southern states. Mm -hmm. And so there has just been a reticence to desegregate higher ed based on funding. And so many of these states created funding formulas that regularly just shortchanged HBCUs. And we should assume that it's race because in um, many of the other institutions, predominantly white institutions, are receiving their full funding. And as a former dean uh, at a university, I can tell you when it comes to making sure you pay what is owed, college university presidents make sure of that. And what are some of the academic consequences that you see when an HBCU doesn't get enough state funds? Well, when any university doesn't have adequate funds, they're not able to produce the kind of high cost programs um, that might be in demand. And so I'll just give an example, engineering. To run an engineering school, it costs a lot of money. And so if you're coming up short, guess what? You're not going to have an engineering program or it's going to be theoretical in nature and you won't have the equipment, you won't have the facilities to have people get the best out of that degree. Um, in addition, you're not able to innovate. But, mm-hmm. uh, but what you're seeing in HBCUs, it's not just that they're not able to innovate or add certain degree programs. Their facilities are deteriorating. They're not able to keep up with um, the competition. And so this just leads to um, a lowering of of standards and eventually students um, won't want to go. You know, some people understand this underfunding of HBCUs as a problem with alumni, alumni giving. Alums can be blamed for a school's financial problems. And I'm curious, what do you make of that line of thinking? When people say this is a, a problem of people giving, and by the way, Black people, in terms of the percentage of their overall income, give more than any other group. Um, but what they're really saying is we're going to blame Black people for the lack of funding in black institutions, abdicating the state's responsibility to do so. That's all that it's saying. Mm-hmm. We need to expose this lack of funding um, as really theft at a scale that is unprecedented. When you're talking about half a billion dollars in Tennessee for one institution, yeah. I mean, this is theft at a scale um, in an That's area. Astronomical. That's astronomical. And And by the way, this is what fuels the economy, a highly educated workforce. And so if we're denying black students, black institutions, we're throttling the economy. So that's why this is just horrible, um, these findings. And we should go deeper. We should do an investigation at every state for every HBCU. And we should assume that they are being robbed. Andre Perry is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you very much for joining our show today. Thanks for having me. When I was little, we found a man. He looked like, like butchered. The old women in the village crossed themselves and whispered crazy things, strange things. El diablo cazador de hombres. Only in the hottest years this happens. And this year it grows hot. We begin finding our man. We found them sometimes without their skin, and sometimes much, much worse. 
El que hace trofeos de los hombres means the demon who makes trophies of man. It is expected that the move bombing would be discussed a lot this week. But last month, it was in the news a lot because of a horrible revelation that one of the move members' remains had been kept in a cardboard box in a museum for three decades and even used by some professors at Ivy League schools. On April 21st, local Philadelphia paper Billy Penn reported that bones, likely belonging to 14-year-old Tree Africa, or 12-year-old Delicia Africa, had been misplaced after being held by anthropologists between Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania for about 35 years. Over the next 10 days, protests erupt and the bones were finally located, eventually being handed over to a Philadelphia funeral home on April 30th. The details that emerged from the story were alarming, that the bones had been stored in a box, almost lost, and that they had been used in an online video for a college course, which has since been taken down. But the incident was not completely isolated. It fits within a troubling history of bone collection at colleges and museums. In 2004, for instance, it was discovered that the Body Worlds exhibition, which became hugely popular around the world, featured the corpses of people who had died in Chinese prison camps in 2001. In an article for Slate titled The Grim Open Secret of College Bone Collections, Elaine Ayers, an NYU faculty member with a Ph.D. in the history of science, writes that more than half a million human remains are held at collections in the United States and tens of thousands of them are at universities. Uh, Dr. Ayers, welcome to all of it. Thanks for having me. The remains have said to have been likely belong to Tree Africa or Delicia Africa, but the original identification of them happened shortly after the bombing. How is it that we are only now learning that they have been shuffling between Princeton and UPenn? I think the really troubling thing is that people within the Penn Museum knew that they were being shuffled around. I think this was quite literally an open secret within this museum, and I think that many institutions, universities and museums both, have these open, dirty secrets within the own institution about human remains that have either been identified or not identified, and it's just not being broadcast to the public. So these bones were held in a box without family members' knowledge for decades. They were nearly lost by the person holding them, and this sounds like just egregiously irresponsible behavior. But if we really, if we pull out, is this a unique case in the context of college and museum bone collection? So I think that that this is a particularly extreme case in that these human remains came from 1985. So it is much more recent and much more troubling and heartbreaking because these remains belong to a child, Mm -hmm. especially from this particularly egregious um, uh, move bombing. But it's certainly not new or surprising to many of us within the field that human remains were being collected well into the 20th century, that they were unidentified and only were identified sort of by happenstance very recently, and that they're being used in courses. Uh, We know the numbers, uh, approximate numbers, of how many bones and human remains many universities hold. Harvard, for instance, holds 22,000 remains, and many of them do date to the 20th century. This is not something that's frozen in time. Human remain collecting is not frozen in the 19th century. And I think institutions really need to reckon with the recentness of, of that history. 
My guest is Dr. Elaine Ayer. She teaches in the program of museum studies at NYU. The Penn Museum has faced this kind of scrutiny before. You write about its Samuel G. Morton cranial collection, which just earlier in April apologized for its, quote, unethical possession of human remains and promised to repatriate its collection of skulls. What does this example of that, what does this collection illustrate about the origins of bone collection? Samuel Morton was someone who historians tend to call uh, the founder of the American School of Ethnology. So he was really foundational in the early American roots of uh, not just anthropology, but in the comparison of human bones against each other to constitute different biological races. And Morton is particularly controversial because of his foundations in scientific racism. He was a staunch polygenist, which means that he thought that different mm. races constituted different species. And he used this collection of uh, more than a thousand skulls and other body parts to argue that races constituted different species. And these arguments were really held up as justifications for slavery and racial subjugation writ large. And certainly not everyone in the 19th century agreed with him, including Darwin, for instance, who uh, did indeed study some of these skulls within the collection, but believed that human beings constituted uh, one single uh, biological uh, species, essentially Homo sapiens, mm -hmm. and that we had similar human remains. So Morton was controversial even in his time. We don't know the identities of all of these thousand people held within these collections, but we do know that Morton and many other people like him uh, robbed many of these specimens from grave sites, from burial sites, and there is no reason why the Penn Museum or any other institution should still be holding them in their collections. Is there some sort of formalized system for keeping track of these collections? That's a really difficult question. So many museums have begun to survey their collections of human remains, and much of that information is not open and available to the public, which I think it needs to be. There is um, a law that was instituted in 1990, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And after decades of surveying human remains across institutions, especially federally funded institutions within the U.S., um, many museums started to really count the number of Native American body parts and objects that were related to funerary rites within their collections. And at this point, many museums like, for instance, the Smithsonian and the American Museum of Natural History are beginning to repatriate some of those remains and some of those funerary objects, but only <laughs> if Native American communities are taking the initiative themselves which means, first of all, that they have to know that those collections are actually there, which is much easier said than done. And second of all, this can take decades of extremely expensive legal work for this repatriation to work. So I should also point out that this only covers Native American mm. remains, right? And as we're seeing in this case, and as we see in so many other cases, including the Morton Cranial Collection at the Penn Museum, thousands upon thousands of human remains within collections at universities and museums um, do not belong to Native Americans. They belong to African Americans. They belong to formerly enslaved peoples within the U.S. They belong to uh, criminals. They belong to impoverished people. And these people seem to be completely left out of the conversation. They are not covered by NAGPRA. And I think we need new legislation to really start to reckon with these histories. 
My guest is Dr. Elaine Ayers. She wrote a piece called The Grim Open Secret of College Bone Collections. This is a very obvious question, but where where do these museums get these bones and get these collections? Who brings them into the museums? Yeah, many of them date to the 19th century. So people like Samuel Morton, who was an American ethnologist, were quite literally digging up grave sites. So they would go to places like uh, Native American burial grounds and uh, burial mounds in particular and dig them up. Um, this was a very, very common practice. Many of the remains come from uh, grave sites for people who essentially didn't have enough money to have formal identification when they were buried. Many of them come from what were these called pauper's grounds. That's the, we, we know that much of the Morton collection uh, comes from these burial sites. Uh, and many of them come from medical schools. So certainly one of the really troubling things that we see at many universities is that their med schools collected the bodies of human beings who were used in research, who were used in autopsies, and were potentially not claimed by family members for a whole host of complicated reasons. And these are not catalogs as other museum collections. In, uh, for the most part, we don't know who these people were. We don't quite know how to repatriate them. And these remains are just living sort of in the state of limbo in med schools and in anthropology laboratories at universities like Princeton and Penn. Princeton and University of Pennsylvania both issued apologies for keeping the bones. They've handed over their remains to a burial home. And it seems like in a lot of these cases, the institution is reactive, apologizing, repatriating, mm -hmm. attempting to right wrongs. What's an example where a university or a museum has taken a more proactive position? To be completely honest with you, I don't think there is an example. I think that uh, most universities and museums within the U.S. have been entirely reactive about all of this. I think that many Native American communities have been very proactive in advocating for the return of human remains within collections. Uh, some communities like the Haida have repatriated thousands of human remains from institutions like the Field Museum and museums across Canada at extraordinary cost and decades of legal battle. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think that any institutions are being proactive about this. What are the arguments that museums and researchers make and educators make for continuing the practice of bone collection? So human remains are often used in forensic anthropology. And we saw statements around these particular remains from an anthropology professor at Princeton who essentially said, how else are you going to study forensic anthropology? And of course, there's value in studying human remains, right? This is how we can identify victims uh, of murder, for instance. It, it's helpful to know how to identify human remains. And you do indeed have to study human remains to be able to make many of these anthropological calls. But to use the remains of people who were dug up from their grave sites in the 19th century, or people who were victims of police brutality in 1985, to uh, used for research in universities and in anthropology departments is, I think, pretty specious and unconscionable. What made you write your piece, The Grim Open Secret of College Bone Collections? I have been following the case of the Morgan Cranial Collection at Penn for quite a while. Um, I was living in West Philly when I first heard about it, and the move bombing was very much part of a uh, public conversation while I was there. And I did a PhD at Princeton. And to be honest with you, I was shocked and appalled that this was happening at a university that I identified with 
at a university that had trained me and many of my colleagues. And as a museum studies professor who works on questions of repatriation, this just shocked me to my core. In some ways, it felt not at all surprising. It felt like this is part of a long legacy within scientific racism in the U.S. that has gone nowhere since the 19th century. It's something I teach constantly. And at the same time, it really struck me that these remains belong to a child. They belong to a child who was killed by police in a neighborhood that I benefited from. And it felt incumbent on me to really explore the bigger scope of this, the bigger history. You should ever definitely read the piece in Slate, The Grim Open Secret of College Bone Collections by Dr. Elaine Ayers, faculty member of NYU's program in museum studies. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Dr. Ayers. Thanks for having me. And the other forward for the final time, number 24 on the floor, 6-6. Five-time world champion, Kobe Bryant. The demon who makes trophies of man. Graphic pictures taken at the Kobe Bryant crash site resulted in some firefighters losing their job. The NBC4i team discovering new details in court documents filed by Vanessa Bryant and her legal team. Investigative reporter Eric Leonard joins us now with more on what he's found. Eric. Hi, Carolyn. It seems like every recent filing in Vanessa Bryant's lawsuit against L.A. County has contained some kind of new revelation about the case, this time that the L.A. County Fire Department has moved to fire two firefighters and suspend a third. This was revealed as Bryant's lawyers have asked to delay the start of the trial because they say the new discoveries show there's still much more to investigate. Vanessa Bryant's lawyers say the firefighters allegedly showed photos of dead bodies from the crash scene to their girlfriends and wives while at an awards banquet at a Hilton hotel. And according to this new court filing that includes quotes from the fire department's internal investigation, the unofficial scene photos only served to appeal to baser instincts and desires for what amounted to visual gossip. Also new, Bryant's lawyers say one of the deputies accused of flashing the photos around this bar in Norwalk was recorded on security video, allegedly bursting out laughing with the bartender after they looked closely at something on the deputy's cell phone screen. Vanessa Bryant sued last fall, alleging the photo taking and sharing amounted to a violation of her constitutional rights and was an invasion of privacy. L.A. County lawyers have asked the judge to dismiss the case, saying Vanessa Bryant isn't a victim and can't sue because the photos never made it into public view. Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and seven others were killed in January 2020 when the helicopter they were in crashed into a hillside in Calabasas. The NTSB said the probable cause was the pilot's error of flying at high speed into low visibility and losing control. The firefighters fired or suspended have not been publicly named. The county fire department says it can't comment because of the lawsuit and it wouldn't confirm whether these firefighters still had their jobs. Bryant's lawyers have not responded to our request to discuss the case since it was first filed in the fall. As it stands today, the case is set for trial next fall, uh, fall of 2021. Reporting live, I'm investigative reporter Eric Leonard, NBC4 News. Back to you. I don't usually do this. This is discuss myself. I find it far more interesting to tell the stories of others, the revolving globe on which we dwell, and the stories spawned by the fragile human condition and the struggles 
of humanity for liberation. But I digress. Uncomfortably, this commentary is about the commentator. Several weeks ago, I underwent a medical procedure known as open-heart surgery, a double bypass, after it was learned that two vessels leading to my heart had significant blockages that impaired heart function. This impairment was fixed by extremely well-trained and young cardiologists who had extensive experience in this intricate surgical procedure. I tell you, I had no clue whatsoever that I suffered from such disease. Now, to be perfectly honest, I feel fine. Indeed, I feel more energetic than usual. I thank you, all my family and friends, for your love and support. Onwards to freedom with all my heart from imprisoned nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. You smoke crack, don't you? You smoke crack, don't you? Look at me, boy! Don't you smoke crack? Yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Do you know what that does to you? Huh? No, sir. It kills your brain cells, son. It kills your brain cells. Now, when you're destroying your brain cells, you're doing the same thing as killing yourself. You're just doing it slower. Now, I say if you want to kill yourself... Don't fuck around with it. Go on and do it expeditiously. Opioid addiction is destroying American lives and devastating entire communities. The CDC estimated more than 66,000 overdose deaths from opioids in the 12-month period ending September 2020. A new two-part HBO documentary starting tonight claims that the opioid epidemic is a crisis and a crime. A crime committed by pharmaceutical companies, distributors, pharmacists, and doctors all looking to profit. W-I-F-M. What's in it for me? That's all they're thinking. The Crime of the Century is directed by Alex Gibney. I talked with him last week. The film alleges that Purdue Pharma and members of the Sackler family who own the company laid the groundwork for the entire opioid epidemic, a claim both the company and the family deny. It's a marketing campaign designed to spread the use of uh, opioids from immediate use after major surgery or end-of-life cancer pain to widespread use for all sorts of pain medications on the assertion, which is really nothing more than that by Purdue, that you really can't get addicted. And as you say, they were pushing doctors to expand the definition of pain, of breakthrough pain in particular, right? And definitely pushing doctors to accept the idea that pain was the fifth vital sign, that, that there was nothing more important than treating patients' pain, even if it was knee pain for an 18-year-old uh, from a sports injury. You know, okay, have some OxyContin, it'll be fine. And don't worry, you won't get addicted. That may be morally reprehensible to a lot of people, but was any of that illegal? Well, it depends. Um, Purdue, the company, did plead guilty to a felony 
of misbranding. And there was a, a rather robust prosecution memo from the Department of Justice, which we were able to obtain a copy of, which actually was prepared to indict a number of Purdue executives for a series of felonies, including fraud, misrepresentation, and conspiracy to commit fraud. You allege that it was essentially covered up, shelved for political reasons? Yes. We don't know exactly. I mean, it, we, we tried very hard to find out exactly how it happened. But we do know that a number of senior prosecutors in the Department of Justice found this 120-page prosecution memo extremely convincing. And so they were shocked and surprised when the Department of Justice itself, after pressure from representatives of Purdue, uh, notably, you know, former U.S. DOGI officials like uh, Mary Jo White and uh, Rudy Giuliani decided not to prosecute the executives and to work out a deal that essentially held Purdue criminally responsible. They, uh, a number of executives pled guilty to misdemeanors. A fine was paid. But most importantly, the key evidence in the prosecution memo was never revealed. It was buried I mean, we contend in the film that hundreds of thousands of lives were lost as a result of that uh, bearing of evidence. I want to get into some of the personal narratives that you tell through this film, specifically of a woman named Carol Bosley who died of an opioid overdose in 2009. Her doctor uh, was a man named Lynn Webster. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, Lynn Webster was a kind of a key opinion leader. He received speaking fees from a number of key pharmaceutical companies, including Purdue, to preach the gospel of the opioid, the idea that no dose was too high, that pain was really the issue, not addiction. And uh, he ran a pain clinic, the Life Tree Pain Clinic in Salt Lake City. And one of his patients was a woman named Carol Bosley, who had suffered a terrible neck injury as a result of a car accident. And he was treating her for pain. She became terribly addicted to opioids as a result of a prescription of a number of narcotics, and she died of an overdose. I want to play a clip from the film. Uh, Carol's husband, Roy, sat down with you, and this is how he remembers one of his last conversations with Dr. Webster. Let's listen. And I'll never forget, he made a statement, and I'm still baffled by it. He said, a chronic pain sufferer cannot be an addict. I am her physician. I will prescribe the medications that I think she needs, and she will be under my care. And that will be the end of it. Dr. Webster maintains that he did nothing wrong. All over the country, we should say doctors were doing this, right? He wasn't the only one by any stretch of the imagination. He believed that he was helping, didn't he? I think he did. I, I think that one of the problems that enters into this equation that's even bigger than the opioid crisis is the problem of economic incentives in medicine. And nowhere is that more evident than in the opioid crisis, where the incentive, whether you internalize it, whether you recognize it consciously or not, is to prescribe more and more and more because you're making more money. You also paint the picture of an entire system. We're talking about the doctors. We're talking about the, the drug companies, the manufacturers, the salespeople individually, pharmacies. Has the system that allowed this to happen been dismantled in any way over the past couple of years? Not at all. Um, I mean, I think that there is now some reticence 
to prescribe opioids as liberal as, as doctors had done back in, say, the late 90s, early 2000s, that has changed. And the CDC has issued guidelines which have changed things. But now one of the big problems is that an enormous demand has been created because you have a lot of people who are addicted. And suddenly now the illicit fentanyl market has entered the country in a way that is becoming ever more dangerous and undergirded by a system that really doesn't have proper attention paid to those who are addicted or an understanding of how supply and demand is working when it comes to these dangerous drugs. The new film is called The Crime of the Century. Alex Gibney is the filmmaker. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Rachel. NPR reached out to Purdue Pharma, members of the Sackler family and Dr. Lynn Webster, who all denied all of the allegations in this film. From bars to mandates to scams, because with the rise of vaccinations comes the rise in fakes, fake cards, prop cards, stolen cards. The illegal market of vaccine cards is here. Just last week in a town about 40 miles southeast of Sacramento, law enforcement arrested a bar owner for selling fake vax cards. Todd Anderson's being charged with identity theft, falsifying medical records, forging government documents. He has an arraignment next week. But it is a novel case, and California authorities tried to find guidance from similar cases across the country. They couldn't. And here to tell us more about this fraud and how common this occurrence may become is Shira Frankel. She covers cybersecurity for the New York Times. Shira, welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I want to start with this case. Uh, this guy, Todd Anderson, arrested after, I guess it was a months-long investigation. You know, these vaccination cards have been out since December. Do, do you get a sense that local officials maybe saw this scam coming? You know, it's interesting. I think in some states, in some cities, local officials were on top of it. And in December, January, immediately began cracking down. But in lots of other places, we're seeing these kind of scams run wild. And unfortunately, because the Internet is not state specific or city specific, it doesn't really matter if a particular state cracks down on it. If there are people in other parts of the country who are selling these cards online, those who want to run these scams, those who want to participate in these scams are going to find a way to buy fake vaccine cards. And by the way, these, you know, with, without having a vaccine passport per se, right? I mean, these cards are pretty much it. Exactly. And as we know, they're very, very low tech. We're talking about a very simple white and black three by five card that anyone can print off the Internet and forge for themselves. Now, the CDC made these cards simple for a reason. They were rushing to get the vaccines out. It was, you know, sprint to the finish line. That being said, what they're now seeing is that these are really easy to forge. People are very interested in forging them for a number of different reasons and correcting this, finding a way to somehow authenticate people who have gotten the vaccine and those who haven't is going to be difficult. You just said this is so easy, obviously, to, to, to emulate, to copy these these cards, to make forgeries of. But how do you prove it? Well, I mean, right now you can unfortunately go to a number of different online stores and I'm not going to list them because I don't want to make it too easy for people, but you can yeah. go to a number of different online stores and buy these for, you know, five, 10, $15, depending on how good the forgery is, or you can download instructions off the internet on how to make it yourself. 
And because there's such a sort of virulent anti-vaccine group here in the United States of movement who really believes that vaccines um, shouldn't be forced on people, they're providing instructions for people on how to print these cards for themselves. And so again, we're seeing while some law enforcement agencies are being really aggressive and trying to combat this and trying to take down local scams, because there's so many of them spread across the internet, it's going to be a real battle for them to effectively remove all the different scammers. So the anti-vaxxers are kind of like, you know, sticking it to the man, right? I mean, we're not going to get vaccinated. And you know what? We're going to prove that we are vaccinated. Right. I mean, when I reported the story for The New York Times, within 24 hours, I was able to speak to three different people who were selling these fake vaccine cards online. And all three of the sellers told me a very similar story, which is why should anyone force us to get the vaccine? If we don't want to get it, we shouldn't have to get it. And we want to try and help other people who are not interested in getting vaccinated skirt authorities as well. And by saying skirt authorities, you mean like in order to sit in a particular section at, a, say, a baseball stadium or to go to a concert or something like that where it's vaccinated only, you have your card. Well, one of them told me something which I, I found even more concerning, which is that this she sold fake vaccination cards to a person who was a healthcare professional who, in order to do her job in a medical establishment, had to be vaccinated, did not want to get vaccinated. And so this person was potentially putting other people's lives at risk, people who were immunocompromised and could not get vaccinated yet. And she was using the fake vaccine card to give to her employers as a way of faking getting the vaccine herself. What's the remedy in this, Shira? I mean, if 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 there, you know, if there are all these phony cards out there, I mean, how do you how do you fix that? Well, one thing that the states are considering right now is if they do roll out vaccine passports or some kind of digital authorization that shows that you got the vaccine, they're not going to rely on those little white CDC cards as proof. What they're going to do is ask pharmacies in your state or mass vaccination uh, sites in your state to give them the evidence that you got vaccinated. And all that's going to happen digitally. It's going to happen through the government. So they're basically going to take on verifying for themselves who got vaccinated and who didn't. I want to go back to this case up north. This is uncharted territory, right? Do you, do you think that it's going to be a hard case to prove? Will, will it hold up in court? I think it will be an important precedent-making case if they are able to prosecute because it will, I hope at least, encourage other people who are interested in selling fake cards online to not do so if they see there are real ramifications that authorities will pursue them successfully. I mean, when you say real ramifications, we're talking about people who are not vaccinated, who are saying they are vaccinated, mixing and mingling. I mean, that's a public health hazard as well. Exactly. And actually, it was, it was that is the main use of these fake vaccine cards. Although one thing that surprised me um, when I did this story earlier this month was that some people were actually buying fake vaccine cards because they wanted to get to the front of the line um, and get vaccinated. They could buy a fake vaccine card, claim they already had one shot and then say they needed their second shot immediately. Now, of course, that's less of a problem because a lot of pharmacies, especially here in California, have same day openings and walk in clinics. But as we start to see younger people getting vaccinated, we think this week we're going to see 12 to 15 year olds be able to get vaccinated. There could be another rush of parents who are eager to get their kids vaccinated and want to get their kids to the front of the line. And this could be a way of tricking the system and, and getting their kids uh, in for a shot immediately. Shira Frankel, she covers cybersecurity for The New York Times. Shira, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I don't want to cause any problems, Lieutenant. I just want a new partner. Oh, I understand. Your partner's a racist prick, but you don't want to stir up any bad feelings with him. Well, he's been on the force for a long time. And, uh, 17 years. And I do have to work here, sir. So 
You don't mind that there's a racist prick on the force. You just don't want him to ride in your car. If you need me to go on record about this, sir, I will. That'd be great. Write a full report. Because I'm anxious to understand how an obvious bigot could have gone undetected in this department for 17 years. Eleven of which he was under my personal supervision. Which doesn't speak very highly of my managerial skills. But that's not your concern. I can't wait to read it. We're going to hear now from three people who we first spoke to almost a year ago. They're three generations of black police officers. Last June, they told us about why they became police officers and what the debate over police brutality looks like from inside the force. Back then, I asked whether they thought the global protests over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others could lead to real change. Oh, I'm optimistic because we have young white people that's involved. You know, think about this, and I think both agree. If this was just black people doing this protesting, they would say the hell with them. That's Isaiah McKinnon. He's in his 70s and retired after serving as chief of police and deputy mayor of Detroit. In Los Angeles, Cheryl Dorsey was less optimistic. She joined the LAPD in 1980 and retired after a long career there. I think that these police chiefs are being disingenuous. You know, they say what they need to in the moment to kind of calm folks down. And finally, Vincent Montague is president of the Black Shield Police Association, which supports officers serving in the greater Cleveland area. He's been in law enforcement 13 years. In the past, if a black woman stepped up, she's an angry black woman. A black man steps up, he's just angry. But now black officers are having more of a voice and are not as afraid to say what needs to be said. We have invited all three of them back to catch up on the last year. Welcome. It's great to have you here. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Will you start by reflecting on what we just heard, your voices from one year ago almost? How did what we've seen in the last year compare with what you expected? I'll go first. This is Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey. I'm right where I thought we would be. You know, there have been uh, very few changes, and I think that's evidenced by what we continue to see occurring. I mean, even while all of that was going on with the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, officers still don't seem to be able to control themselves and give pause when they decide to use deadly force, in my belief, as a first resort, rather than the absolute last thing you should use, having exhausted all other tools and opportunities. Well, this is Ike McKinnon, and I I think I'm eternally optimistic to a certain extent, but I, I agree with Cheryl to a certain extent. But let's go back to the trial of Chauvin. For the first time in my long history, literally, I saw a police department that is the chief, and there's a commander, there are other people who who stood up and literally said that the officer and officers were wrong. I've never seen that. I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, of uh, officers that were taken to trial who were mm. who were set free. That that's never happened. Interesting. So we've got kind of the glass half full and the glass half empty. Vincent, when you look at this, what do you see? I I was optimistic last time, and I the culture of policing officers don't want that culture to change, and the officers that I deal with, they're they're afraid other culture changing and they, they don't like to be held accountable um and 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 you can see them seeing that at work like gosh like guy like guys at work now are getting terminated like caucasian mm-hmm. men are getting terminated for things they would not have gotten terminated for in the past you mean like racist words and actions that yes. kind of stuff yes i i'm happy for that we have cameras now and social media 
to put this stuff out there. And it reminds me of my grandfather telling me about the civil rights movement. And when the world seen how racist actions and black people were being treated in America and it forced changes to be made. And I think it's happening now, but it's not happening how it should be because like, like the sergeant said, is that officers are still committing these actions though. I'm curious, Cheryl, when you hear about this, I mean, that officers who do racist things are getting fired, that violent officers in the case of Derek Chauvin are getting convicted of murder. Um, The incidents you're describing are still happening. How do you weigh those things, right? That there is some measure of accountability, but it hasn't fixed the system. There's some measure of accountability, but there's still so much more to be done. And let me just double back to what the chief had to say about, you know, for the first time in in many of our histories, uh, we've seen police officers testify against another. There was much being said about the blue wall finally shattering. But listen, let's be clear. Mm -hmm. That's a police chief. I don't give Chief Arredondo any brownie points for doing that because, listen, he's in damage control mode still. He knew exactly who Derek Chauvin was. Derek Chauvin had 18 personnel complaints. He had been the police chief for two years, says, yeah, I know who Derek Chauvin is. Yet they allowed him to stay in patrol, live to offend again. And but for Mr. Floyd dying, we would see him well on his way to complaint 25, 27. I don't know how many more he could have amassed. And I'm curious, when these sorts of incidents happen, Vincent what is the conversation like among officers and has it changed since the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer? Well, amongst um, African-American officers, the conversation in regards to the Chauvin trial, we're hopeful. Um, and, and because we're in this environment, when you go into an office, this Fox News is on. And um, so these officers are repeating what they say. So they don't agree with the verdict. They don't think that he's going to get a lot of time. You're saying the the white officers or the black the, officers the white, don't the white officers. The, they yeah, think okay. like that. So it's hard going into a work environment when you're, you're hurting with the community and you're going to a work environment where people are saying these things. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised after talking to Cheryl and Isaiah, but I, I am surprised to hear that in the year 2021, the officers you serve with who are white are saying Derek Chauvin should not have been convicted. But you see, it's the mindset of these officers, it's not going to change. I mean, here we are. I joined in 65, 20 years later or so, Cheryl joined. 20 years later, Vincent joined. And we've talked about the same problems, the same kind of individuals. The kind of people that we bring into this field of law enforcement is most important to do a total assessment and evaluation of them. Otherwise, it continues. So if change from the outside doesn't seem viable, and Vincent, you're saying change from the inside doesn't appear to be happening, where does that leave this country? Well, let me, let me, let me say this, because I don't want to um, give the impression that um, there's not anything possible, right? It's not going to be easy, I think, is what we're saying collectively, because the problem is systemic. And in most cases, as I often say, it's top down. But there are things that we can do. And certainly when the community get involved and get engaged, as we see with protests and everything else that happens, I think that will start to get the attention. Certainly every police chief, 
serves at the pleasure of a mayor who is an elected official and elected officials understand one thing and that's votes. And so there are things that can be done, but the community, the community, the community must get involved and get engaged and demand it. That was Cheryl Dorsey, a retired sergeant in the L.A. Police Department, whose latest book is Black and Blue, The Creation of a Social Advocate, as well as Vincent Montague, president of the Black Shield Police Association, which supports officers serving in the greater Cleveland area, and Isaiah McKinnon, a retired police chief with the Detroit Police Department, who was also Detroit's deputy mayor. Three generations of black police officers in America. You are a real piece of work with your complaints, you know that? You think I like living next door to you three? Just the other day, I caught your mother-in-law digging through my trash can like a fucking refugee. Your wife's cooking, the smell of that dink cuisine that comes into my yard every other night. Okay, that's enough with that talk. Let's leave my wife out of this. Your wife? Wow, that's a laugh. Tell me, what skin magazine did you order her from? Prosecutors in Georgia announced this week that they are seeking the death penalty and hate crime charges for the suspect in the Atlanta area shootings in March. Six of the eight people killed were women of Asian descent. But proving that these killings constitute a hate crime could be difficult. Tin Ho has seen that challenge firsthand. He's the assistant chief deputy district attorney at the Sacramento County DA's office in California. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thank you for being here. I'd like to first talk about what happens at the beginning when someone reports an instance of hate. Can you just explain what warrants a report of a hate crime versus, say, an incident where maybe someone's just exercising their First Amendment right to utter a racial slur? Well, first of all, I think it's extremely important that everybody, whether it's a hate crime or a hate incident, report it to the police. But let me give you an example of what a hate incident is. A couple weeks ago, my 16-year-old niece was walking down the street with her friend when a pickup truck pulled up next to her. The adult male inside said, what ethnicity are you? My niece looked at him and said, I'm Vietnamese. To which he responded, because of you and the virus, It has ruined my children's lives. And so that is a hate incident because he never threatened her. He never used any physical force. He never blocked her movement. But it was spiteful. It was hateful. And it was jarring for a 16-year-old girl to have experienced that. Sure. But it's not something that would be prosecuted. That in itself is not prosecutable. But let's say that particular individual two weeks later commits a hate crime where he goes up and he punches somebody and yells racial slurs. Uh, well, what we can do is use this prior incident with my niece to go ahead and prove his intent on the subsequent case. Well, let's talk about proving out bias when there is, as you say, violence or vandalism or a direct threat. Because the white man accused of these Atlanta shootings denied explicitly having a racial bias. How do you think prosecutors will try to prove that he did have one, even if he may not have realized he had one at the time or he wouldn't admit to it? Well, first of all, as a prosecutor, I can't comment on on any pending case, but this is what I would do in terms of investigating and charging a case. I would look at the person's social media history. I would examine forensically their computer. I would look to see if they were blogging or commenting on white supremacist websites. I would do a forensic download of their phones because oftentimes circumstantial evidence of their mental state and their bias is going to be reflected um, on their computers, on their social media platforms, and in their conversations with family members and friends. 
And when a crime involves Asian victims in particular, are there any unique challenges to seeking hate crime penalties? Most definitely. There are cultural challenges. Um, There's a language barrier. There's also fear of immigration consequences. Mm -hmm. And there's the general reluctance of Asian Americans to report crime from a cultural perspective because we just put our heads down and keep going on with our lives um, instead of reporting, instead of speaking out. And it's a cultural aspect. And so those are the challenges because we know that hate crimes and hate incidents are grossly underreported in the Asian community. Finally, I mean, before I let you go, We've obviously seen a rise in anti-Asian violence in this country over the past year. And I'm wondering, practically speaking, what do you think people can do to combat this? Anything? So first and foremost, it's about education. But secondly, there are a lot of community-based organizations and nonprofits out there that are doing good work. So, for example, um, I spent a a weekend um, down in our local Asian area um, wearing a vest and escorting Asians Uh, elders uh, out to their vehicle and watching them as they were doing so to make sure that they were safe. We hand out whistles um, so that they can use those safety whistles. So there's a lot that you can do. Everybody should connect with a community-based organization, especially um, to assist uh, API members. Tinvo is the Assistant Chief Deputy District Attorney for Sacramento County. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the program. Now look at this. I'm saying that once you start talking about genetic survival, we're getting into the white supremacy mindset. You've got to understand what is in the white supremacy mindset. You cannot impose. See, we want to impose. Everybody wants to get along. That's not where they're coming from. See, they're coming from white genetic survival by any means necessary. Now, how do I assure my genetic survival? What exactly do I have to do? What some expected to be a COVID-19 baby boom is now being considered a baby bust. Birth rates have dropped since states across the U.S. locked down last March. According to new data from the federal government, the birth rate declined by 4% in 2020. That is the sixth year in a row where the birth rate has decreased. Other countries like China and Italy have also seen birth rates drop this year. And it's not just birth rates, fertility rates, or the number of children a person is expected to birth during their childbearing years are also on the downturn. So what's really driving this and what does it mean both in the short and long term? For that and more, we're joined by Carrie Racion, an associate professor of public policy at the University of Connecticut. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, so what is, uh, was the decline in the U.S. birth rate expected particularly this past year, or, or was it still surprising? Um, I think for for me, at least, and for many economists and demographers, this was a, a, a pretty expected decline. Uh, as you mentioned, this is our sixth straight year of declining birth rates. So um, there was no reason to think that, that things were going to going to change that trajectory. Um, and in fact, what we saw was an acceleration of those birth rate declines, particularly in the last part of 2020. Um, and that's that's not surprising given the the time demands uh, that families faced in the in the pandemic months. Uh, what is the, the connection to the pandemic? 
here? Yeah. So, you know, kids are something that take a substantial amount of time and money on behalf of their parents, right? We have to invest a lot of time and money into kids. And when those two things become scarce or when there's uncertainty or when families don't feel like they can appropriately invest in their children, um, and especially when we create trade-offs between working and having children in our society, it's just not surprising, I think, to a lot of people that that women in particular chose to have fewer children, um, both in the preceding years and then especially in, like I said, the latter part of 2020. When when women, you know, right in the, the thick of COVID, um, were losing their jobs more than men, were having to leave their jobs to take care of their children when schools and childcare closed, this is probably more reason for women to say like, Meh, not, not the right time to have kids, right? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So not only are birth rates and total fertility uh, rates down, women's labor force participation is also at historic lows. Um, and so, you know, mothers have disproportionately felt the caregiving strain in this p- pandemic, but but also all the time, right? A lot of the caregiving burden has fallen to mothers and to women. And women have seen this and millennials have seen this. And, you know, uh, women can pay attention to patterns and and make decisions that perhaps um, this isn't a trade-off that they're willing to make. And how should we think about declining birth rates in the United States and other countries, given that globally there is overpopulation? Yeah, so, you know, I think obviously population is something that that countries have to consider about and think about in in multiple ways. But we also have to think about and acknowledge that children are one source of future worker, that they're they're a future um, labor force. They're also just like future society, right? Um, Not to get too cheesy, but, you know, the children are our future in lots of ways. Um, And so if what we have set ourselves up for is an aging society um, and children are not then there to sort of uh, repopulate the labor force, then that can present problems for economies, for uh, growth in economy. We may not have people's talents um, to, uh, to edge our society on, but more broadly, you know, many social service programs, sort of social security being the the keynote program, relies on future workers um, and particularly their wages to fund that program. And so there may be solvency issues to think about for, for federal programs if we don't have future children, but we do have an aging society. By that, I mean, we have retirees. Yeah. So I normally work at an economics podcast. And one way to think about people being born is that people are not just people. They are consumers and workers and taxpayers. And if you don't have enough people in your city or your country, that causes all kinds of problems, um, like what you mentioned, uh, less babies. What would the effect of that be on Social Security, for example? Exactly. Right. And so it would it could create a problem where that that program isn't solvent. I want to be clear that future children born to um, American women are not the only way uh, to think about that program solvency, right? There are 
There are certainly other ways. There are economic benefits to immigration, for example. Um, and then, of course, there are just other funding mechanisms that we can think about. But but under our current funding mechanism, this does present a challenge for that for those kinds of programs moving forward. Um, I'm wondering if the current decline is a matter of people just choosing to delay having children down the line, not necessarily forego having children. Do you know? Yeah, so this is a question, this is a big question uh, for demographers and something that um, we've been interested in for a long time, right? So some of these falling birth rates, for example, are for falling birth rates to, to teenagers, right? So the teen birth rate for 15 to 19 year olds, for example, has fallen a lot, you know, in this year, but also since, you know, the 1990s where it peaked, it's fallen 75%. And I don't think anyone... Uh, would like to change that. I think as a society, we certainly want teen women waiting to have children. Uh, the question is, do they make them up later in their fertility years? And a lot of the answer, we're starting to really sort of get that data. And it, it doesn't look like women who are delaying their children in their sort of 30s are then making them up in their, you know, when they're sort of 35 or so. We're seeing, um, things like just overall child childlessness rates. So people, there are more women not having any children, which is certainly uh, indicative of women not just, just choosing not to have children at all. So, so families are becoming smaller and some women are choosing to, to not be mothers at all. Carrie Racian is an associate professor of public policy at the University of Connecticut. Carrie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 15, 2021. So I have been told uh, if you were listening, tune in Black Talk Radio Network, just refresh. Or if you were attempting to listen to that and see if the feed hadn't refreshed, so I did it again. Refreshed. If you're listening live at TuneIn or Black Talk Radio Network, just refresh and should be rolling. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have suggestions, questions, uh, thoughts to share. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. <clears throat> A few things before we get to folks who dialed in. Uh, we should be here tomorrow uh, Global Sunday Talk on Racism, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, I'm very eager with the announcement uh, this past Thursday. So it's been basically 48 hours here in the U.S. Them saying, hey, if you're fully vaccinated, psh, willy nilly, go high five everybody, chest bump everybody, no masks, you know, let the good times roll, as they say. Um, is that the case across the world? Or, you know, what, what do people in different parts of the globe think? Do they have similar uh, mandates now in place, like if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to do all this wacky distancing and masking up and all the rest of it. 
very excited uh, to chat it up with them and, you know, the rest of what's going down on the plantation globally. But that will be uh, tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Then we should be back on Tuesday, May 18. Uh, we had one of our investors uh, has talked a lot about uh, urban planning, community development uh, within the systems of white supremacy, racism, uh, people who do uh, what they call community architecture, developing cities and all that. Generally, or lots of times, individuals classified as white. Uh, but the Sarah Jo Peterson, white woman, she and a number of other individuals classified as white uh, did like a series of reports uh, talking about how interstate highways were used to destroy areas where black people reside. Uh, and there have been lots of reports about this over the past, like, week, month, year, uh, just all over. The LA Times did a bit of big uh, write-up about this, and NPR just had a number of uh, big reports about this. We've talked about this repeatedly uh, over the years. We talked about some of the different, because it's in so many different locations, like they focus on specific areas, Alabama and a few other locations, but it's so widespread uh, where anywhere where we got niggers, problem let's put a highway here bam that'll solve all of it move the niggers out and then we can you know get easily make it to the mall or mcdonald's or wherever we are trying to uh you know motor vehicle to but she should be we're actually put an asterisk with that she and some of the co-authors uh because i told her i saw it was uh, numerous people were involved with the report so we should have uh sarah joe peterson and colleagues Tuesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And then on Wednesday, uh, Dr. Ruby Lathan uh, should be back with us uh, to discuss eating correctly, getting some exercise in, the yoga program, fitness program, all of that. That'll be uh, on Wednesday. Make sure people are eating correctly as we get back out for uh, warm weather in the summertime. Book club is Thursday. I guess we'll be on every day this week, Tuesday through Saturday at least. Uh, So we'll get one day off. We'll be on tomorrow. We'll get one day to hit the beach and enjoy and then every day for the rest of the week we will be right here context of white supremacy springtime counter racist grind next <clears throat> let's see misplaced my list here okay one I meant to say this last week I think we had talked about <clears throat> before black people being made the so called face of anti-Asian crime. Uh, They talked about the Georgia shooting, spa shooting that happened uh, that was not a black person. Uh, I have noted that many of the cases, not all, but many, like it is not proportionate at all. Uh, Like if there's any case that I see and it looks like the perpetrator is a black person and you're talking about some sort of hate crime against a person classified as Asian like we that happened in New York like I don't even need to look uh, it seems like many many of the reports <clears throat> where it is alleged that a black person may have done this New York I've seen a few in California as well but overwhelmingly it's been New York and even with that my conclusion based on reports that I've seen in someone who does not live in New York, so I'm not bombarded with those images or reports daily, uh, but my conclusion still, no, I'm not saying black people are the so-called face of anti-Asian 
violence. The champion still racist man, racist woman. <clears throat> See next, uh, the mask policy. Even folks right here in the U.S. like man, that is uh, that is stunning. I'm, I'm asked about it on workplace racism yesterday. I'm eager to hear if that has impacted like where people are. If you feel that or see it locally, any observations in terms of has there been an abrupt change of policy? Has there been an abrupt change of behavior? Uh, where you see large numbers of people who are out, no mask, doing, you know, frolic like uh, after what the Centers for Disease Control said earlier uh, in the week, because that is uh, stunning, stunning announcement. Um, let's see some of the reports specifically. The report on STEM research that was with KCRW in California. Shonda Prescott Weinstein uh, was the guest uh, she didn't give all the details, but to me, she looks like she'd be a non-white person who may have a white parent. Uh, they had an image of her with the interview and <clears throat> all about, hey, uh, we should be attempted counter-racist scientists. Spectacular. However, I thought it was interesting. One, in that report, they didn't mention Margaret Sanger. Like, they want to do all this about uh, science and STEM and then uh, women being excluded from time to time and uh, discrimination and black people being excluded and it's only Einstein and what have you why not include Margaret Sanger now she's not a scientist but I mean ooh we at the forefront you want to talk about poster child and the face of a movement Margaret Sanger and eugenics which I don't think they were mentioned in that report at all of course they got the obligatory mention of Tuskegee yes 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 but there's <clears throat> so many other components uh, of white supremacy uh, white supremacists uh, using some sort of pseudoscience to promote the business <clears throat> enterprise of white supremacy. So I was a little surprised there. Definitely could have got Margaret Sanger and probably some others in. But then I was equally, well, I won't say surprised, but I thought it was important. The white person uh, doing the interview at KCRW, she made it seem as though. <clears throat> the problem might be we see things differently they got all into this how melanin works and how we see things and all of that that is totally irrelevant to the system of white supremacy racism individuals who classify themselves as white choosing to abuse terrorize all the people that they say are not white that is not about or our eye structure is different or how our cones and rods work. That's not what this is about at all. And that is totally disingenuous. I've heard whites do that sort of thing uh, before and try and make it seem as though that's what this is. That's not what this is about, especially when it's a white person uh, talking to a black person. And I, this is uh, the person uh, doing the interview, Madeline Brand uh, for KCRW. Like that sort of thing is just uh, atrocious every time that I, I hear it. And even some of the, the way that they structure the interview. Uh, and if you want to check out her book, Disordered uh, Cosmos disordered cosmos and then you can come to your own conclusions is she does she is this a non-white person with a white parent next the segment they talked about the history of black people non-white people period having their body parts corpses uh, stolen used for science they connected that with the move bombing and the recent acknowledgement that the corpse of one of the children at least uh, has been lost carted around used for online classes and all these other tacky 
uh, demonstrations, uh, I said, ooh, that was important. The segment that we had at the beginning in front of that piece from the 1980s classic Bill Duke for colored girls, Carl Weathers, Predator, the demon who make trophies of men. Racist man, racist woman, racist. I mean, what other group can say it is a part of our cultural heritage to keep testicles in a jar and brag about the experience? The demon who make trophies of men. And we heard about all that. That's not new. We read about all that in medical apartheid. <clears throat> we just talked about that with Chip Jones, the organ thieves. He talked about all that bunches of times over and over and over. <clears throat> Even the move situation, the segue, bring it back just this week. Now they're doing all that hoopla today to pretend that they like Kobe Bryant. I reckon uh, he gets inducted into the hall of fame just this week. I try to emphasize that from time to time, the reports, always for the compensatory call-in we're only hearing now what took place what reports did we get just in the last seven days this is not from the entire month of may this is not from the entire month this is just what has been reported since sunday kobe bryant firefighters in la fired two of them and then they said another was suspended For sharing, that's the same thing. The nigga postcards, that's white culture. The exact same thing. Swapping postcards of a dead nigga. Burnt up nigga, right? Crispy critters. We heard that one. That's what they did. Bragging. That's in uh, Last Man Standing. Talking about the Black Panthers. And it was uh, LA correctional officers. So, same thing, really. Civil servants out bragging. Crispy critters. <laughs> Look at that black mamba. <laughs> What's funny about that? Tell me the joke. Let me know. I thought Kobe was loved. Don't they have Kobe Bryant Day in Los Angeles? He won all those championships. Kobe and Shaq, we love you, brother. Black brother, got your jersey on. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> and it was nine people died. It wasn't just Kobe Bryant, right? So, I mean, we got presumably these are the, the remains of he. And then, and I think it was seven white people, right? I don't have all the images and everything in front of me, but I think it was some. it was quite a few white people who perished in that crash last year. <laughs> Kobe, Look at him. <laughs> the demon who make trophies of men. And it wasn't just them. It was widespread. Uh, where this was, and this was coming out of L.A. These are people who presumably grew up, you know, watching Kobe Bryant, Lakers fan. We love the Lakers. Let's see. The segment, all of that science them and collecting black bodies, corpses, pictures, yum, yum, yum. Negro postcards and such. Uh, then <clears throat> they talked about the cicadas and their 17 year cycle Benjamin Banneker not being credited for his discovery his work scientist uh, that was Ishaka Musa Barashango the late uh, in the segment talking about Banneker City also perhaps that's two things Mr. Banneker not being credited for laying the foundation talking about being an architect for a city not being credited uh, with laying the foundation for Washington D.C. perhaps uh, but that segment I said why I mean <laughs> Mr. Banneker at that time, like he could have been killed easily, easily for anything, reckless eyeballing, 
reckless jocularity like any reason you know for him to be the person who is that observant paying attention to things being scientific like wow I think they're on a 17 year cycle and then they said he predicted Dr. Francis Cresswells and come on function that's what we should be attempting to be really serious studying paying attention to things that happen around us and then based on our study and observations you can make predictions about things that are going to happen Banneker City Washington DC love it we'd said I talked about that I think we talked about getting his uh, biography before that's before they shut all the libraries and things down but maybe that things will be opening back up soon we'll have to see next uh, we heard uh, Andre Perry guest on the cows about this time last year uh, he's the one who gave us the quote there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism won't solve that was his quote from last year he was on the segment talking about the deliberate theft uh, from historically black colleges and universities uh, they were talking about Tennessee specifically at half billion dollars but this is a pretty widespread thing uh, just like the highways interstate highways and such uh, burning and they even talked about that sometimes with uh, historically black colleges I think they noted uh, the one in Alabama I have to pull up the exact report in front of me but it was the one in Alabama they specifically they wanted to tear down Reverend Ralph Abernathy's house house in uh, Alabama and then they also they wanted to run the highway so they directly split the historically black college in Alabama it would split the college from where the black residents live so that they would no longer be a so-called community that would be another great illustration you don't have communities if your enemy can just wake up on Sunday morning or any day and decide, you know what? We are going to put a highway right through the middle of Negroville. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it but move. You don't have a community. But anyway, they talked about Alabama specifically uh, and how they built a highway to split apart the HBCU there away from where the black people lived. We'll talk about that on Tuesday, perhaps. Anyway, uh, that was Andre Perry. He was on the cows last year. The so-called opioid crisis, I think Ivy told us repeatedly uh, that, hey, man, they don't do that with the other drugs. They use uh, the street name when they're coming out to castigate black people and crack babies and crack mamas and all the rest of it, they use the street lingo. Generally, the same thing with the weed. It's chronic, right? Weed all the way. They don't say cannabis. They don't do that. They come with whatever the street title is. They haven't done that with this the whole time. It's about the opioid crisis. Oh, it's been the crime of the century. Oh, it's a shame how they got over all these. Be like, wow totally different portrayal uh, for these white people that they've had now for years of uh, how they talk about words are important let's see uh, the segment where they talked about uh, the where they talked with the black police officers uh, to get their reflections a year after everything has unfolded with the Derek Chauvin trial and the rest of it I thought it was noteworthy one of the black officers said that if you are a black female and you come in and you bring up some of these issues you're an angry black woman which we've heard before they got a whole book by that title said if you're a black fella and you do that you're just angry 
And I thought, wow, that's... So, I get you're an angry black woman. That's not a compliment, right? If you're a black guy, you're just angry. You're not an angry black man. You're not an angry black male. You're not an angry black boy. You're just angry. I thought, wow, is that another component of black misandry? Uh, We just talked about dehumanization. Like you don't even get to be a person. You're just some angry entity. Maybe that's not the case. Uh, Next, I know we have people uh, who are in different parts of the world or different parts of the, the world. Yes. And different parts of the U.S. specifically with the whole gas crisis. They reported the pipeline hack. Uh, they said that they've had lots of uh, what they're calling panic buying on the East Coast. And they listed specific areas. The Commonwealth, the Coon Man, they said Virginia, and Scotty Rees, North Carolina and a few other areas in the South where they said uh, it's so-called panic buying. And they said this is not that they have a supply problem. It's a distribution problem in some places and a people are hoarding gas, buying lots of it when they don't need to and bringing up extra containers to fill up generators and that type of thing uh, and to where some places actually are, as I said, running out of gas and they're supposed to get refilled and then the supplies don't make it and that sort of thing. So uh, just checking in, they have not reported any uh, supply issues or problems out here on the West Coast. So is that are any cows listeners being directly impacted by the gas supply problems that are or shortages that are being reported uh, on the East Coast? Let us know. 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. For this program specifically, if we could not use metaphors there were a number of them but I'll only pick one uh, an important one not the most important but just it was important now the segment where they talked about the uh, fake records fake vaccine cards I had to chuckle they got 3D printers now you know they they call themselves be it all wringing hands and such about these 3D printed guns ghost guns that you can't get a serial number it can't track them and oh my goodness in this era what they come up with for vaccination cards after, you know, 14 months of all this contention and arguing and fighting and everything is, let's see, for proof that you got vaccinated, we'll get an index card and a crown and just write, have you been vaccinated? Check yes or no. And leave it at that. Like, come on. It is 2021. Like, anyway. In the midst of that segment, they said that the people who are creating these fraudulent index cards, check yes or no, uh, he said that they view themselves as, hey, you know, you're not going to push us around. You're not going to tell us what to do. I don't want to get a vaccine. You're not going to tell me to get a vaccine. They view themselves as, hey, I'm sticking it to the man. Now, I don't think you'd have to ask them, who is the man? Hear who they say. I don't know. Maybe they'll say Al Sharpton, President Obama, Jesse Jackson. I don't know. You have to check in with them and see. But generally, talking about somebody classified as white when we get to talking about the man and the woman wouldn't have a system of white supremacy without racist woman, racist man, racist child. But 
neither here nor there uh, if we could refrain from using metaphors uh, to articulate our thoughts and views uh, many times the race soldiers they will deliberately invoke metaphors to cause confusion we have been exposed to this misconduct for a long time uh, if we could make an effort to be precise exact specific with what we want to say uh, a lot of times we don't have a logic myself included and so sometimes we will substitute an analogy or metaphor uh, to articulate our views and that just contributes more confusion so be mindful I will prompt about the metaphors thank you kindly context of white supremacy listen to supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com uh, when you visit the blog PayPal button is in the top right corner much obliged to all the folks who have invested uh, for 12 plus years I uh, hope you have gotten some not just a little bit but quite a bit of constructive accurate information about white supremacy racism what it means how it works things we can and should be doing to solve this problem immediately uh, cash app also linked uh, the address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows again many thanks to the folks who have supported and kept us broadcasting uh, you can also visit the wish list at amazon.com it's under Gus T Renegade uh, much oblige all the folks who have nabbed an item or three uh, over the decade uh, again hope we've been worthy of your investment uh, I said yesterday <clears throat> Friday on our neutralizing work workplace racism broadcast uh, we had a person uh, write in victim in Ohio uh, they wrote in had written in for I guess a, a few, at least a couple weeks consecutively and they wrote in the previous week I read their commentary and I said the G, -G, -G, G got the sounding like Curtis Jackson deliberately Q and I followed that by saying victim guaranteed qualified now I said that we've explained that concept before to keep there from being conflict grousing with non-white people so that you know if I say it's red and you say it's blue that doesn't result in you know we have to go into fisticuffs and breaking out razors and just okay no problem you know maybe maybe it's both who knows but even for the time being you'll say it's blue I'll say it's red vice versa whatever you're guaranteed I'm guaranteed we're both qualified to take that perspective and we'll keep it moving it's designed for that whole purpose we don't have to have consensus as victims of racism I've explained the concept before and I make an effort to be mindful not to just say the acronym VGQ because I've noted that can cause confusion there was a time when even old Gussie Wussie was confused about what does this VGQ thing what is that what uh, you know hey we all are still learning we all didn't you know weren't born with this information so anyway the victim in Ohio who wrote in previously and I said you know VGQ victims guaranteed qualified she said what she said we move forward and I asked the question 
because it was talk, it was about trust. Um, the gist of her email was, you know, that we, uh, ADOS, I think they call it, the black people born in the U.S., we should not trust Mexicans, Asians, non-white, non-black people, maybe even so-called black people who were not born in the U.S., that we shouldn't trust them in a workplace context. All well and good. The question that I asked was, have you developed a method on figuring out who is trustworthy amongst the people who are classified as black who were born in the U.S. who have like four black grandparents eight black great grandparents who were all born in the United States so called have you developed a method for finding out whether or not they can be trusted and I didn't get an answer to that question in fact I'll pitch that with anybody that's listening right now as well because I have not when people sit around and I have to sit through conversations. Remember, we were at the 2019 yoga retreat in Virginia and we had to sit through. I want to take the next five minutes to talk about the boule. They were not talking about black people born outside the U.S., Koreans, Mexicans, Asians, Indians, none of those. Remember the Kuhn Illuminati? golden oldies Woo. I remember the Kuhn Luminati and I don't remember any of its members being classified as Asians, Latinos black people who were born on the continent or someplace outside of the US black uh, what is it Judas and the black messiah I don't think William O'Neill is a black fella born in the Caribbean I could be wrong. Maybe I missed it. Maybe they they snuck him in. He was born in Madagascar, the Congo, Ethiopia. Not the most intelligent black person, but it seems like there ends up being lots of conflict with non-white people regardless. In fact, I see even some of these problems outside the U.S. where you have black people born in the same part of the world. Scratch that. Even non-white people period sometimes they're not classified as black where it's the exact same problem where they're in conflict with each other so all of that to say if anybody can't answer that question about trustworthy black people born in the u.s feel free i've concluded white people racists they promote lots of conflict especially among non-white people victims of racism we should try to minimize that as best we can at any rate I played back yesterday what I said before because I was accused of name calling a victim in Ohio said that Gus said V C as in cat Q and that this was some form of name calling and then she went on with the rest of her commentary I was going to read the rest of the commentary today because it didn't really relate to workplace racism but since I was accused of name calling and saying V C Q and she wrote V C Q twice in her email I didn't just say V Q I said victims guaranteed qualified I would encourage everyone if you don't know what that concept is if you are still confused about it producejustice.com Neely Fuller has lots of literature some of it explains the concept which is his victims guaranteed qualified we've in fact discussed the concept with Mr. Fuller on this very platform before I would encourage go back and read if you have not heard that concept and or are confused about what it means but it is certainly not name calling but all of that to say 
I'm not going to read the email. If you took it as gusty name calling, you can find another program or you can go back and listen again to be clear about what was said and or get clarity about what victims guaranteed qualified means. I'll say again, strive for accuracy. Very, very important. Strive for accuracy. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-543-POUND. Excuse me, 564-943-POUND. Code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. But now, if you're fully vaccinated, I don't know, has this impacted anyone's stance? Are you rethinking? Do you want to get vaccinated so you can go back to frolicking like old times? Not impacted your thoughts about wanting to be vaccinated? Has it impacted what you're seeing, how people are behaving in your part of the world? And then with the gas shortage, so I guess this is people on the East Coast, perhaps. But have you been impacted by the gas shortage? Any of our listeners or if you have any other thoughts, observations on what was shared during the segments? Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Feel free. Hello, Mabby Harris. Greetings, Irie, Louisiana. Yes, ma'am. Salutations, Steph. Um, hello, everyone on the line. Going to make this brief. Uh, um, thank you for letting me uh, go, everyone. I'm not affected by the gas uh, gas shortage. Got some gas gas cans. Um, yeah. I recently um, quoted Mr. Fuller's DGT on uh, Twitter with a person I was on um, Twitter with, which I do not use um, frequently, but sometimes, like, I don't know, I'll get bored. Um, And this person retweeted a picture of Kid Cudi in a dress. I was shocked. And um, they said it was in honor of, um, ironically, Kurt Cobain, who I spoke about spoke about um, last time on the call, so he must have wore some type of uh, floral shirt when he was on SNL or whatever. So they put this victim of racism in a dress with the same pattern, and so I was like, uh, you know, OMG, I can't believe Kid Cudi, you know, did this. And the person was like, why? I was like, you know, I, I believe it's gone too far with. Um, men, black men putting on dresses and she kind of berated me. I thought you knew better than that and da 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 this is why I'm not on Facebook anymore and yada yada. So I said VGQ, um and I put Mr. Fuller behind it in the hashtag hoping that she would wanna know what that means, um, to try to get her to produce some justice and be on code. Um as far as astro the astro physics thing is really funny that um, she was saying that she thinks it's her community of professionals um, that it's their fault for not um, being open to non-white black people. It's 
everybody's fault. Um, because I'll say this, um, when I was young, uh, my, I've, tell you just like this. I wanted to be an Egyptian first because I thought that was a job. I did. And I said, yes, I can be a queen with ease, you know. So then I realized that that was, you know, something um, the ancient Kemites, you know, that was in the past. So then immediately I noticed that I had an affinity by the space, which I probably expressed at a time or two on this program. Um, but by the time I got to third grade, I had some uh, racist suspects that did not teach us at all. We would literally just, like, do whatever in class we could, whatever we thought of to do, that's what we would do. Um, I'm not sure what her plan, I don't know what they were allowing her to do. So I said something about it because I didn't feel like I was being fulfilled and I felt like I was. I could feel that I was no longer being challenged whatsoever. I was just there being watched. And it Excuse me, and then she basically punished us because of me speaking out and started, like, giving us a lot of work and doubling it and didn't explain anything. I was like, hurry up and turn it in and get it done. And I lost interest in math. I never lost interest in science, but I lost interest in math. Um, so it's definitely the teachers, and it's also the people, you know, with the postgraduate education and everything. Um, you know, the, the the last thing I want to say um, was two things. I'll make it quick. You know, the evidence of uh, where people imagine children to be, you know, it, it shows out in the curriculum and the field trips they put, uh, take them on. When I was more confused and uh, moved my son out to an um, area with mostly uh, racist suspects, uh, in his eighth grade year, they took them to um, a stock exchange and to another financial building and to the district courthouse. And where I lived before, where it was mostly non-white black people in eighth grade, they take them to to tour the jail, okay? And the other thing I want to say before I go is I realized, I, I knew it, but I really, really realized it because I was talking to my mom trying to convince her to do some investing as I learn and get less confused about that. Um, they're about to really, really um, push, well, that's a metaphor. They're about to really make sure that a lot of non-white people are no longer able to function in society because if they're talking about reports where people are aging and there's nobody being born to replace them in time and these are the future workers, she said what she meant. She was honest at her first, you know, uh, statement. If they're doing that and then they're, and then they're also making it where, you know, um, the dollar doesn't, it never, it never really did mean anything after they took the gold standard, if it meant anything then. But if you don't have crypto and a variety of it, I'm not sure where a person is going to fit in society along with the vaccine. I actually think this particular thing with the vaccine may not, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm a victim and I'm still learning. But what I can see with this crypto stuff Get some, get some, please, if you can, and do the research. My son, he's teaching me. Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm be gone. Thank you, Wayne. Much obliged, Irie, on Twitter uh, at counterracistgumbo.com. Um, great job. Uh, yeah, just trying to take things serious. Hope I just remember last week when you were talking about your uh, offspring. I hope he's safe, doing well. Sobriety would be best. Uh, folks are trying to take care of themselves as uh, best they possibly can. 
Uh, let's see. Other folks that we've missed totally, uh, if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Greetings, non-Clemson grad. Uh, Sarah Jo Peterson, Tuesday. Yep, I look forward to it. I did read the entire um, eight-part series, and I have come up with a couple of questions. Uh, I am shocked that you were able to get a couple of her um, co-authors as well, too, along with her. Um, I did ask her, I'm not sure if you noticed while reading the articles, at least for the ones that she wrote, uh, they had citations, but the other co-authors, a lot of their um, portions did not have a lot of citations, which irked me a little bit personally. But nevertheless, if she got a couple of co-authors on it, some of them non-white, I am interested to see what they have to say about it. Um, And let's see, for some of the things for uh, this week, um, the one with the black Jewish um, physicist, um, that was very interesting. Uh, my wife brought up a picture of her, and um, when we looked at her, we couldn't tell she was black. Not to say that she's not, just we just thought that was interesting. What she also found out is that this woman, the uh, black Jewish physicist, is also an LGBTQ type person, which was a little confusing to me because my mother, oh, sorry, my, my wife said she was married to a white male, so uh, confusing. But you said it a little bit earlier. Every time we start having conversations about how you know racism and how you know and how how it intertwines with science. Um, me personally, anytime I start hearing that conversation, I turn off because um, to me it's nothing more than a distraction like, you know, racism is not real, racism is not we- real. And it makes me think back to when you um, when you did the book study with um, Race and Racism, the Einstein book. Um, that, firstly, I felt not to be a great book. But one of the co-authors, when he specifically says, um, you know, the white author, I think he was Jewish as well too, uh, said that, you know, racism is not real. It's just some kind of construct. Um, and, you know, just more of that uh, distraction away from white people's um, behavior and, when, and what they're doing and what they're clearly doing to uh, non-white people. Um, so let's see. Obviously, the CDC guidelines have changed recently, and no sooner they changed. My workplace um, regulations changed with them as well, too. So um, my, uh, my manager sent an email about um, what the rule changes are. If you got vaccinated, Excuse me. If you get vaccinated, um, you need only pr- provide proof that you've been vaccinated, and you are now able to walk the building without a mask, and you no longer have to social distance. But if you can't prove that you've been vaccinated, you have to continue to wear a mask, and um, of course, continue to social distance, which to me, of course, comes out to be papers, please. Um, so no sooner that policy changed, I go in the hallway. Um, me personally, I wear my mask even if I was vaccinated. I, um, well, whatever you just do, um, I was still gonna I'm, I'm gonna wear my mask anyways as we continue to go through this and you know see what happens. But I did notice, you know, when I do things like walk my um, hallways at work or even going to the grocery store stuff like that, black people are still continuing to wear their masks, but white people not so much. Now this is not to say that there aren't some black people who aren't wearing masks, and this is not to say that there aren't white people who are still wearing masks. But I'm, I'm starting to see a clear delineation between who's choosing to continue wearing masks and who is who is not. And then, of course, I live in the southeast, so um, so I'm part of part of the place where the gas shortages are happening. Um, firstly, I thought it was very interesting um, when this whole fiasco was going down. For example, the uh, sec- well, not the secretary, um, the speaker of the uh, of the U.S. House. Uh, uh, Representative Pelosi came out and talked about the contractors that were specifically hired to address this particular issue with the gas shortages. And she basically, uh, she said that they were um, authorized to deal with the situation as they seem fit, but she refused, absolutely refused to say that the contractor paid the, um, the ransom 
to get the pipeline back online so we you know get the, um, get gas um, distributed throughout the southeast and I just thought that was hilarious like we knew what she was saying and we knew what she wasn't saying and we knew what she was willing not to say but you know politicians are going to politician I suppose and I thought that was very interesting and um I, I had to look this up but I think at one point when they talked about paying the ransom the ransom came in the form of crypto uh, crypto and having to pay the ransom in crypto now, me personally, I do not know too much about crypto. If you choose to engage in that kind of stuff, you know, more, um, to do what you feel you have to do. Um, but I remember when the crypto craze first started, um, I had a lot of friends who were saying things online, like things like, um, you know, go ahead and invest, but you have to do your research. Um, and, or, with, or, yeah, do your research, right? But what happens is when you actually try to ask them specific questions, about crypto yourself, you don't have to direct question. The only response they ever have is you have to do your research. Now, in my experience, and this is for all people, no matter who they might be, whether it be black, white, etc., um, usually somebody knows something about something, even if it's not true. So they usually have something to say. And I find it very telling that people could talk about cryptocurrencies and how great it is, but when you try to ask them a specific question, all of a sudden it turns in to um, you need to do your research. Um, that, that confuses me. Um, but hold on, I think my wife might have some to add as well, too. Good evening, Gus. This is Misty. Uh, good evening, uh, listeners, council listeners. Uh, I just wanted to share a little bit about the, the gas shortage. So we're, we are in South Carolina, and... Um, my husband, non-Clemson grad, got a tip from his manager. His manager is a white male, and his manager's brother works for the FBI. And and so um, my husband, he sends a text message to a group of, um, like, close friends and everything, telling them, hey, you know, something's happening with, um, there's pipeline, there's been a cyber attack, and you need to go get gas. You need to fill up if needed. Um, and, you know, I was just like, oh, okay, I'm not really driving too too much anywhere. So that, that tip came through, like, maybe 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, which was well in advance of the panic because most people at this time are already at work. And they wouldn't be getting off work until like 4.30 or 5 o'clock. Um, and then the panic, <laughs> the panic would occur. So I don't think too much about it. And then one of our friends um, gives me a call and he's like, hey, you know, I, I hope you filled up. Uh, go and fill up the van to <laughs> to make sure you stock up on gas because it could get crazy over the next couple weeks. And, you know. Uh, around like 4 o'clock or so, I just go fill up my car. I go fill up the van, which holds about 32 gallons. And then I was just like, okay, we'll just sit with it. Um, and everything was fine at this point. But uh, later on, our friend said that there were long lines. There were places where they were covering up pumps um, as though they were out of order. And people w were reporting that... Um, they were waiting like an hour in line. Um, gas stations were limiting how much gas they could get to maybe like $30 per person. 
Um, some people were upset and they were saying like, oh, you need to prove that you go to work. Um, and they they were blaming other people like, oh, all you guys who are unemployed or stay at home, you know, you guys, you guys don't need the gas. So there was a lot of blame and a lot of panic. Um, and, and what's crazy about it is we've noticed that um, a lot of people were, were filling up um, like the gasoline cans, you know, one gallon, five gallon, getting multiple gasoline cans, using containers that are not supposed to be used to, um, to gather up fuel and start hoarding it, um, such as the, um, the Rubbermaid containers that you get to, you know, stow away your clothing for the winter or whatever. Um, people were using plastic bags, <laughs> plastic bags and like double bagging. And, and, and what was interesting was one of our nurse friends, he, he shared um, a report um, a, a couple counties over of a woman who she was in a police chase and while she's racing away from the police to get away, she ends up crashing her vehicle. The vehicle catches on fire because she was hoarding gasoline in the back of of the trunk. Um, she gets out. She's on fire. And she ends up getting, like, second-degree burns and going to the hospital and then landing herself up in jail. Um, she was on meth, by the way. So <laughs> That's a, that's a funny part, but um, as far as like the pipeline, the pipeline cyber attack and everything, it it got really really crazy down here in South Carolina. And I heard that there were reports in Virginia that gasoline got up to um, seven dollars a gallon. Down here, like uh, a couple cities over, I think Monday by the end of the evening, like maybe seven o'clock, I think gasoline shot up to like three fifty a gallon. I don't know what it is right now because I haven't okay, it's two eighty. So it jumped up from like two two thirty, two fifty, depending on where you were, to about two eighty. Um and and the the um what do you call it? What do you call it? The the pipeline is back online, so everything is back to normal. But <laughs> yeah, everything's back to normal. You know, just people people went crazy um, for the last couple of days and and whatnot. So with that, I'll end end my report. Wow, Miss C, non Clemson grad. Wow. The pl- I saw the plastic bags and inappropriate material because I think they had some like <laughs> officials had to come out and tell people like please use appropriate material uh, if you are going to get gasoline and to kind of uh, scold people about the panic buying and saying to stop hoarding gasoline in the first place because that was part of the problem but wow um, and again access to information who did the tip come from? Uh, I think we heard from Missy. She said her husband, non-Clemson grad. I don't think they said the tip came from some black people who were born someplace else. I don't think that's what we got. I don't think we said the the tip came from 
some non-black, non-white people, some untrustworthy Mexicans or Asians. I think the tip came from a white person, a white person at the FBI, no less. But, oh, it was the white boss and then his brother works at the FBI. There we go. But either way, access to information like, wow, now think about that. What if, you know, they had been pregnant, you know, or, or had major emergency pending or something like that, like that could have been. Wow, like getting information at nine o'clock in the day that, oh my, gas shortage? Hmm, all right. Well, we can go leisurely and not have an hour wait and fisticuffs and all the rest of it, as opposed to you don't know anything about this and you get to the end of the day and, oh, you know, I'll fill up and whammo. Now I got all this and I'm stressed. I mean, access to information sometimes means how good is your access to white people? Amazing. Amazing. Who has an FBI brother or family member? Like, come on. <laughs> what is that? Like, uh, woo, man, oh, man. The system of racism, white supremacy. Let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have hands up, commentary to share, if we missed you totally, the number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943 pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh incidentally for uh irie uh she was talking about the i guess exchange that she had on social media uh over the uh contempt for gender involving the uh black male job well done uh thanks sometimes uh, that, you know, it can be really easy to hop into conflict and name call, no count dirty. So especially online, like it can be really easy. Keyboard thuggery is rampant. Uh, but to just, you know, hey, trying to bring up some Mr. Fuller and see if we can make it construct. Oh, no. OK. All right. <laughs> and then keep it moving. But good job making the effort. I do think that's constructive and just trying to at least get the uh, concept uh, BGQ. No need to argue if we don't. And we don't need to agree. We we don't necessarily have consensus. No problem. Move on to another subject matter. Let's see. Uh, Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Thanks for asking about my son, because he's just fine, by the way. Just wanted to let you know. And and thank you for the email that you sent. Ahimsa. No, it can be difficult. Uh, it's difficult for hip stretches. You know, I've racked my brain a little bit and did some research. And, and yeah, it's difficult to do hip stretches with a straight leg or keeping your leg straight. Uh, most of them would have to have some mobility, be able to bend that knee. So Ahimsa, hope you can heal quickly that, uh, I would be going bonkers for a lot of reasons. I hope that's not a metaphor. I would be not in a good mental space if I had to do all that sitting and felt like I couldn't move around. And then my body was getting stiff from all the, Oh man, I can certainly empathize. I hope you wish you speedy recovery and, uh, yeah, try, I guess, get some gentle movement in if you can be real easy. Uh, Let's see. 
I guess I do want to make sure I don't undermine the HBCUs because they did have a report this week that I thought was equally important. They said what uh, the report was making a correlation with everything that has transpired over the past 15 months, we'll say uh, with the COVID situation, Derek Chauvin trial, George Floyd being killed, all that, uh, the protests and everything else, attention on racism, white supremacy, that, Many students, many black students uh, are now choosing HBCUs, right? Awesome. Uh, They said they've seen a big spike uh, in uh, admissions. Uh, And awesome. Great. Uh, They were going into a lot of detail about that and even talking to some of the young students as to why they were making this choice and wanting to be. And I think a lot of them said specifically because of racism, white supremacy, they wanted to be in a safer or safe environment, even though that is, you know, certainly not the case, even at an HBCU in a system of white supremacy. That said, uh, the finance component theft, I thought was <laughs> enormous. I mean, uh, even with that, like if you have an increase uh, in enrollment at, at these institutions, well, then that makes the funding even more critical uh, because then if you have more students Uh, Generally, what that means is you get more funding. You know, uh, they have an increase. I'm at Seattle uh, University of Washington in Seattle, and they have a big sprawling campus and enrollment well in excess of 40,000. They have the University of Washington campus. I don't even know how many libraries they have at the Seattle campus alone. Uh, It would take it would take me some time. Like I regularly brag about the number of public libraries that they have here in Seattle, like 20 of them, no exaggeration. The University of Washington, just the Seattle campus, I think they have at least one, two, they have at least five, it's probably substantially more than that, but at least like five really large libraries, like not a one room type deal, like several floors, parking structure attached to some of these facilities, uh, elevators, escalators, also in some of them, like well-resourced facility. They're not struggling. Nobody is stealing their budget and then coming around with the audacity to blame uh, the alumni uh, because, oh, you all didn't you know, support. You all don't give back. Oh, stingy. So it's like, come on, come on. They're not going through that. And they had the affirmative action thing out here. The very small enrollment of Negros uh, at the University of Washington. But the HBCUs, like, wow, uh, to just be stealing and, and to just make this a regular part of how we do our academic budgeting to make sure that we, uh, what do they call it? Stiff the black colleges. And then remember that? I think, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. I think we have some other folks who are alums at HBCUs. I don't know if folks remember they had the incident at Grambling State. This was maybe 20 years ago or so, but they had their acad or the athletic facility. That's what it was. Their athletic facility was in really bad shape. I think they had like mold and just in disrepair, the type of thing that if you had adequate funding, maybe it wouldn't be a problem. And then they just could turn around and blame them. Oh, black people. Oh, they can't do anything right. Oh, they don't take care of anything. Blah, blah, blah. And all the rest. Standard operating procedure. But I did think that was super important. The theft of HBCUs and increased enrollment. That too. I didn't play the uh, report, but that was also reported this week as well. 
uh, other folks' thoughts, observations uh, that they want to make sure they get in? May I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to just the hosts, the listeners, and callers. Uh, as far as the uh, the gas situation, I think uh, well, it looks like the uh, the people in the area where I'm at, northern Florida, uh, north central Florida, from the reports I've been hearing the last couple of days, I guess they're saying that. Um, our supply comes from southern Florida, like the southern part of Florida, and I guess it's not directly connected to, uh, I guess, the pipeline. So uh, I learned that bit. And then, uh, you know, of course, there's been some price gouging, I think that's the term, uh, going on around the area as well. And I believe someone's uh, vehicle, I guess it's called a Hummer, uh, bursted into flames uh, because they had some excess tanks or little uh, containers of gas filled with gas, and I guess that must have helped cause the the flames to ignite and whatnot. Um, There's also some news that came about from the governor, apparently, uh, where he signed in, he signed an executive order that grants clemency to people who violated the COVID-19 restrictions. So, as the person earlier mentioned, uh, thinking that it is mostly people who are classified as white who are being the most defiant. Uh, like, I don't want to wear a mask. Like, you can't tell me what to do. You're taking away my freedoms. And then it's still people down here wearing the Trump DeSantis uh, type of shirts. So there's still all of that kind of propaganda helping to influence this, um, I guess, counter-resistance or defiance against the uh, necessary protocols about COVID-19. And it was one thing I noticed on the audio segment where, and and I'm glad that you're you're playing the audio segments about the birth rates. Uh, Like I noticed that when they mentioned the Tuskegee and the hesitancy, that's the word to use when it comes to black people mainly. Uh, not wanting to get the the COVID nineteen shot, they'll specifically use those racial classification identifying terms: black, African American, or whichever. Then I noticed that in those <laughs> in those segments where they're, they're talking about the birth rates, they'll be more abstract. Let's say American and the population, um, women aren't going to work or women are not being in the labor force when I just think they really are focused on white people um, not reproducing because there was a uh, a report on one of the actors um, I forgot what his name was 
him and the lady he was trying to create an offspring with uh, had, I think, four or five miscarriages or something like that. And they definitely wanted to place value in that and promoting that on the uh, news broadcast. Uh, And one last thing, there was a story where I think up in the New York area, I guess they had like a, a situation where a young child was shot and the suspect was a black male. And on our news station, TV 20, they were interviewing this guy. I guess they uh, arrested him or picked him up around this area. And he's like, Hey man, I didn't do anything. I don't know. What, I don't know what y'all, what, what are y'all talking about? Um, but just to go ahead and, get a black guy, put him on camera. There's got to be one of them. One of you did it. So um, other than that, that is the only thing that I have to share. And thanks for allowing me to speak. Sheesh. Where is my lawyer? Like, come on, <laughs> just come grab some black person. Uh, I was confused for a minute. Then I forgot that we switched states. I think I was still thinking because we had talked to, in succession, we talked to non Clemson grad and then Miss C and I was still thinking South Carolina and I was like, Oh, wait a minute. We're in Florida now. Ron DeSantis. He granted clemency after all the, are you serious? <laughs> what in the world? Like people, they came out and just like, well, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to tell me to wear a mask and all the rest of us and shut my business down. So there, hmm. And then, like, I don't even worry about it. Like, what? <laughs> I just said, like, networks and all that. I mean, you want to talk about, like, now, Ron DeSantis, this is the same fella who, when it was, hey, let's have some clemency. Let's restore roading rights. Ah, I don't know about this now. This this Gillum fella here. I don't know. We can't just be letting people come back and vote willingly. Well, wait a minute. Was clemency? Clemency? No, it's... Don't even worry about it. If you didn't wear a mask or didn't want to take public health seriously, the Sunshine State forgives you. Your governor. Vote for me. 2024. And he said they got the, they're still wearing the MAGA shirts in Florida. Come on, man. Come on. Like, uh, whoo, I'm wounded. Uh, and I saw that the, uh, uh, Miss C, now South Carolina, she said the woman on meth. And they had the accident and everything, explosion. She was hoarding gas. I saw the Humvee, uh, the news report, caught on fire, had the uh, gasoline cans in the vehicle, what have you, and big fire and all the rest of it looked like it destroyed uh, the vehicle for hoarding gasoline. In a Hummer, no less. I mean, really, all kinds of (laughs) layers of of hoarding there. Um, there's been a lot of that sort of behavior over the last uh, 14, 15 months. Like just, I think the system of white supremacy encourages a lot. It might be white genetic and all of that. We heard Dr. Welsing a lot, right? The birth reports. Uh, and I, I totally agree. I agree. 1000% it's black people specifically. They don't hardly ever say white people. It's only been recently. They did a few reports where they said uh, 
Republican. They don't even say white people. Then they say Republican males. That's what they say. So I have to go back go back to what I was going to say originally. The only time that they become racial is to identify black people, non-white people. They'll do a few reports about so-called uh, Hispanics or Latinos. They'll say that occasionally. But generally, it is black people and Nurse Rivers and oh, Nurse Rivers and Tuskegee. Oh, they're hesitant and oh, the dumb niggers. Uh, when it comes to fertility... They don't do no, it's total race blind. We just United States fertility rates. It's uh, Judith and Lason. She was just with us in March, about a month and a half. She said it's specifically European male sperm rates by 2060. She said it was 60% of European males will be infertile. That was in her book. And then countdown was also talking about North America and Europe. So that's even that's not saying white people, but I mean, that's way closer than what we generally hear. That's much more specific than what we generally hear in terms of where the concern is. But that might be white genetic annihilation, like a part of the the Asili, if we want to use Dr. Marimba Ani's terminology, that horde mentality, got to hoard everything, got this constant fear, white genetic annihilation that uh gonna run out of this gonna run out of that oh my goodness gonna run out of this hoard 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 it might be uh just a part of i have to go back to look to see if that's in your does she talk about i think that might be i have to go back to look and spend i have to see if that's in your does she talk about hoarding as a part of uh white supremacy culture i'm gonna have to go back and investigate and i will let you know once i've checked the book out reading more important than watching television uh let's see uh other folks who dialed in <clears throat> that we've not heard from at all. If you have a hand up, proceed. Um, greetings, Gus. Greetings, um, callers and listeners. Um, I thought the um, move bombing segment, um, I thought that was really interesting because um, I suspect that information coming out at this time about the um, bones is a... Uh, a way for um, racist men and racist women to um, mock the black people and um, further victimize the people who are, were um, killed in the fire by um, keeping their um, bones in the institution. Because white people knew that this was going on, but they just let us know about it um, at this moment in time. And um, I thought the thing about the light pollution I mean, about what the um, woman was saying about um, the stars and the sky. My um, cellmate often mentions um, light pollution and how when um, she went camping, she was able to see the um, stars and the sky. And I I had a thought that um, I wonder what kind of relationships we would have with the creator or what kind of messages we would get from the creator if um, we had, like, less light pollution and maybe had um, more moments to think in a um, clear night sky. Um, I really appreciated what Irie said about the um, cryptocurrency. Um, I think it is um, would be constructive for um, people to um, learn a thing or two about that and um, invest. And you could also um, try it out risk-free, uh, risk by getting on this app called Coinbase, and you can do these little um, classes on the cryptocurrency, and they'll give you um, that currency that you're lear- that you're learning about, and um, 
I got about fifty dollars in like three minutes. So that's um pretty constructive use of time, I think. Um, I'll meet my line. Coinbase. We will check that out. Learn something about everything. Mr. Fuller encourages that. Learn something about everything. Coinbase. Check it out. See if you can learn. Maybe improve your uh, financial literacy, as they say. Uh, much obliged. Uh, I can say, just being here in Seattle, where they are all about nature and being outside, I almost wanted to cry. We had tickets for the yoga retreat in Toronto. There was a flipping observatory, like five minutes, literally a five minute walk. We were going to do a five minute walk from where we were staying for the yoga retreat to the observatory and sit outside. And I mean, it was massive. Like, and just look up at the heaven. What is, uh, we talked about earth, wind and fire. Keep your head to the sky. Like, man, as someone in Seattle, we're, as I said, they're all about nature and stuff where I've been able to be uh, outside where I, the area where I live now does not have a lot of light pollution. And it's uh, 8.37 p.m. Pacific Daylight Stand or Daylight Savings Time. Uh, so it is not dark at all. It's still very sunny out. Uh, so probably have to wait about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, I can tell you moving here, I can readily now pick out. Oh, that's the little dipper. That's the big differ. Like you can pick out constellations and all types of things. Like it is very different when you can look up and expect to see things in the sky because there is no light pollution and you can see the stars. In fact, we uh, we were in Bellevue, which is the really white, ritzy, expensive suburb that is like 10 minutes outside of Seattle, east of Seattle. Uh, we were in this was August 2012, right around the time of the Olympics. We sat outside in the really ritzy, nice park uh, and no light pollution in Bellevue, of course. And uh, there was a meteor shower. So we were just able to sit out and wait. It was amazing. Like, psh, totally. I think Irie said they do field trips to the prison. You have a totally different perspective on life. What's your vision? What do you think about? What are you supposed to image in your head? Cells, visiting rooms, razor wire, or stars, constellations, even picking out what is that constellation named, meteor showers, like very different perspective about life. And even the flipping lake that I've been hanging out and loving that lake I thought was man-made it is not the lake Green Lake specifically was formed by the Vashon Glacier 50,000 years ago even that if you get to sit next to that and hang out there and think about that and put things in perspective as opposed to we're going to go to the local penitentiary today and maybe see some of your family members Other folks that we have missed completely. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Uh, uh, yes, uh, I uh, did attend uh, two historical black colleges and uh, 
was fortunate enough to graduate from both of them. Uh, as far as my knowledge and understanding, uh, I can't remember a, a time in their histories where they did not have financial problems. Uh, but uh, uh, the production that comes through those institutions uh, uh, is always always something constructive to uh, to witness. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be around a lot of uh, other young people who had ambition. And, uh, and in turn, uh, uh, invigorated me to, uh, to, uh, obtain, uh, some understanding so I can graduate from those schools. Uh, the only thing I would, uh, state that, uh, they would need to have is a, uh, it should be also an institution that, uh, would, uh, basically promote uh, means of how to solve the problem of racist white supremacy from a direct scientific uh, type of uh, agenda. Uh, South Florida, uh, it seems to have been an a, a, uh, escalation of violence by uh, guns, uh the latest situation uh there's been a uh been a cliche down here uh that the caskets are getting smaller and smaller meaning that uh a lot of children have been victims of uh guns uh as young as 3 years old uh, and with that, he was, uh, shot to death at his quote unquote birthday on his birthday, uh, at a birthday party. <laughs> I can't even remember. I can't even remember birthday that I had when I was three years old, but ne nevertheless, this three year old was shot to death. Uh, as far as the gas situation, uh, I was informed that, uh, in South Florida, there is a different pipeline. So therefore, uh, theoretically speaking, well, not theoretically, but realistically speaking, that, uh, there is no quote unquote gas shortage, but nevertheless, through panic or just hoarding in itself, uh, it created, uh, a somewhat of a, uh, a uh, means of uh, some gas stations running out of gas because people were buying more than what they normally would buy. Uh, but uh, I don't think it was nothing real serious as far as that concerned. Matter of fact, I haven't even bought any gas since uh, I think Monday. <laughs> but because uh, I really don't go anywhere too tough. Uh, but uh, what else? What else? Uh, can't think of nothing else right now. Uh, and, uh, that's my report for this week. Thank you. Much obliged retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, 
the hoarding of the gas uh, could be a component of racism, white supremacy, because it seems like that happens with oil. Is encouraged, you know, just hoarding and buying things, buying lots of things, buying things uh, in excess, in excess. Uh, that's the whole, you know, Costco and Sam's Club and bulk buying, like buys many as possible, eat all that you can eat. Seems to be a major part of the system of racism, white supremacy, or uh, racist white supremacist culture. I'll say it that way. I could be in error. Uh, they did include as well with the HBCUs and looting from them. Retired firefighter, he said, alumnus uh, HBCU. He said that uh, that's been a long tradition at HBCUs uh, as a part of as. <clears throat> people being to blame for that being white, but still long tradition of them not having appropriate funding uh, within all of that. Uh, Howard uh, just having to cut their classics department. And I guess there's been lots of outcry about that. And folks are very disgruntled uh, about them not having it. But I mean, that's what happens when you don't have adequate funding. You have to cut departments and cut programs, whether they, the metaphor they use cut corners as they say, and then they sit around and say, oh, your program's an inferior. And then the folks last week, remember in Rockwood in Missouri, uh, and they had one of the black educators, and she uh, graduated from an HBCU, and the white people there said, oh, that's a joke. Some Mickey Mouse school metaphor that we don't take seriously. System of racism, white supremacy. And again, if you consistently are stealing from the Negro schools, you're not ignorant about racism other folks have commentary that they wanted to make sure they point out we have about uh, I guess 10 minutes maybe less in the broadcast hello can I ask the firefighter a question your volume is a little low if you could speak up Ivory uh, if you get your question in okay okay I'm, I'm here um, so I wanted to ask the retired firefighter fire, fire um, <laughs> what his advisement is for um, managing a group for youth. I recently um, embarked on a group for um, teenage girls between 16 and 19. I'm basing the curriculum uh, off of the compensatory code the ISIS papers and Urugu and other supplementary things. Um, I'm easing them into it um, with uh, yoga and meditation to start, um, even though I can't do it right now. Um, and uh, making sure I've written down this uh, plan, you know, to make sure I emphasize what they need to bring and, um asking questions about anything they don't understand. But, uh, uh, I mean, you know, outside of school, I've, you know, I've dealt with teams, but it's been in a uh, supervised position at school. So this would be basically my own doing and everything, and I need to uh, want to get some expertise from someone that's been doing it um, for a while, because I know you've been doing this group for a while. The, the DCS, I believe you say, program. Yes, I, I certainly wouldn't mind sharing that. Gus, could you uh, share uh, with with uh, the lady my uh, my contact number, and then you can call me at any time that you would like to call me. Thank you, thank you, Hotel. 
Thank you. Take care. Will do. Will do. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, questions, suggestions, proceed. While folks are seeing if they get their last thoughts together, that is awesome. Sharing a little bit of yoga and meditation uh, with some young victims of racism. That is awesome. I so wish I had a little bit of uh, yoga uh, in my life earlier. Even that, I've been uh, practicing yoga almost exclusively outside at the lake, Um, like pretty much every day, Uh, days that we don't have programs practice yoga at the lake and wow like he was saying like when you practice yoga and you're in downward dog and you look back and it's a beautiful fresh lake that was created by a glacier 50,000 years ago and maybe the ducks flutter by and the sky is beautiful and crystal clear It has a very different impact on your brain computer than doing yoga in an environment with a lot of smog and traffic and noise and cars and racket uh, or 50 cent plan since he was mentioned earlier in G unit and Kanye West. They used to love playing at uh, Kanye West and a lot of the studios that I went to. It is very different practicing yoga in a nice calm environment peaceful be around nature being able to get that to young people so they can learn some techniques to kind of calm down breathe center themselves not have all the racket and noise just kind of slow things down calm things down slow their heart rate down invaluable so Whoopi, I'm sure retired firefighter will have some great uh, bits of wisdom to share. Uh, We'll be here tomorrow for the Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, That'll be 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific. Uh, Again, I'm super eager. I'd be at the lake, man. If we weren't, (laughs) I'd be chilling at the lake, do some water. I'd do some work and then I would get to doing yoga. Uh, But we'll be here. Uh, We check in like, man, what are they seeing the the switch in policy here in the U.S. and looking to do the same thing or, you know, what is going on? What what is it looking like for the summer over there? Uh, That'll be tomorrow. And then Tuesday, we'll have uh, Sarah Jo Peterson and company uh, to talk about the interstate highways and deliberate white supremacy racism. Uh, and then Wednesday, Dr. Ruby Lathan will be on the program. If she was here today, oh my goodness, my brag would be I had one of the greatest smoothies in the history of the world. Uh, cantaloupe smoothie. It's uh, actually in the flipping uh, Vitamix uh, recipe book that I never use. Uh, but <clears throat> oh, there I found it. Uh, it's in the Vitamix recipe, Vitamix recipe book, but I, that I never really use. But I made this before; it was great. I made it this time with frozen cantaloupe, frozen pineapple, frozen orange. <sighs> made all the difference. Said that for a long time. Freezing your fruit makes all smoothies better. Freezing the cantaloupe. 
totally different level. Like, wow, frozen banana too, but easily one of the best smoothies I've ever had. Had fresh lemon in it too, so it has a little bit of kicked. Epic, absolutely epic. Gold, it's literally called the gold metal smoothie, and it was that. Like, absurd cantaloupe is amazing. Made me, uh, taste summertime that's another one no sugar like anybody that's looking to either wean themselves off of sugar like summer's coming up so people are going to want uh cold sweet treats and what have you uh smoothies can be a great way to kind of minimize or wean yourself off of sugary beverages and concoctions um no sugar the uh, beverage, the gold medal smoothie that I just mentioned, no sugar and none needed. Super sweet, amazing, delicious. Children love them, and you can have all different types. I am oh, chomping at the bit for my frozen watermelon smoothie. Like I had those every day last year. Ah, super sweet, amazing. There's so many different ways you can tailor it to whatever fruits they like. If they really like strawberries or mangoes or whatever or if you would have been like Gus T I don't even know what these fruits are. I don't even eat mangoes and papaya and all those different goofy fruits uh, going up or to have them in different ways yes you've had cantaloupe before but have you had a frozen cantaloupe smoothie blender Vitamix I know are kind of pricey but whew, they're worth it but you do not need a Vitamix you can have just a blender you can get a good blender and have all kinds of really delicious healthy fruit vegetable concoctions for the summer so helpful for children we talked about how children gained a lot of weight many of them over the past year being out of school and all the craziness and everything whew, smoothies take advantage of all the fresh produce that's available in the summertime uh, frozen watermelon. I'm telling you, that is the best one ever. Freeze the watermelon. Uh, other folks, anything they want to share? Last five minutes. Yeah, um, I know I'm in the chat box tonight. Um, I just thought it was funny. Um, my son, lift, he lifts weight, and We've been trying to convince him to go vegan um, and that he can get his protein from plants, and he wouldn't do it. So he was cooking some chicken uh, a few nights ago, and he actually found a, a nematode in a piece of chicken, and he had to throw it all out. And I asked him, I said, well, what are you going to do if you cook some more chicken and you find another worm? Um, and, you know, we can even identify what, what type of worm it was. It could have been a tapeworm, could have been a round worm, whatever. And he's like, I don't know, and I don't care. I'm not going to stop eating meat, so I'm hoping I can get him to listen to Dr. Ruby and, and maybe even have him um, on the line live so, so he can hear from her how he can uh, still bodybuild and, and not eat meat because that was pretty scary. He, he could have eaten the, uh, the worms, the parasites. And it was hilarious, too, because he had just told him to stop eating meat. So thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night, Gus. That is Wednesday. Dr. Ruby Lathan was just with her yesterday practicing a little bit of yoga. Um, and she's talked about that. Uh, Game Changers. She referenced that documentary before where they have body built like massive, like the people that do the uh, literally, they call them the world's strongest man competition to see, you know, who can lift a thousand pounds with their pinky and that type of craziness. And uh, some of the, one of the guys on there who's really really good in these competitions vegan and they showed him lifting all kinds of crazy weight like lifting 
several people at a time and just goofiness. Uh, but they had uh, NFL football players and I mean, not not just uh, like cyclists and gymnasts. Uh, they had an uh, MMA fighter, as I said, an NFL football player. They had people who were doing contact sports and doing very well. Uh, bustle, uh, weightlifters, people who were doing all of that, building muscle mass and plant-based diet, didn't consume any, you know, dairy, cheese, meat, nothing, and no problem at all. And most of those people, in fact, reported benefits that their performance had increased since they dropped the meat products from their diet. But yes, Dr. Ruby Lathan on, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday, she will be here. I'm sure she will be eager to hear that as well, because so many people, they get run. A lot of that is just training. Uh, The system of white supremacy has trained, indoctrinated us well uh, with meat. It's what's for dinner. And that ends up encompassing everything, chicken and seafood and, you know, all of the nonsense. But I mean, we have been well trained our conditioning has been conditioned especially around food we have not been conditioned to think wow vegetables can be uh, that cantaloupe can be amazing and all the other wonderful things that we can eat that's just as you know we're still learning still learning. and racists have deliberately they have done a lot to very much confound us about healthful eating and what's going to be best for our bodies but dr lathan on wednesday uh folks satisfied anything else much obliged might be chicken might get priced out of eating chicken as often as we like they've been talking about all the uh chicken wars and all the rest of it has driven up prices of chicken and they don't have chicken wings at certain places anymore and all the rest of it like that might cause some changes as well um yeah maybe we're not supposed to be eating all those chicken sandwiches and all the rest of it that's been reported a lot as well uh, anywho, we'll be back in, uh, I guess, about 12 hours, a little more than 12 hours, Global Sunday Talk tomorrow. Much obliged for everyone's participation. I uh, hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Stay safe, uh, I guess. Make sure you have uh, suitable Petro. And uh, wow, what a wacky year and pff, year and a half or so it's been. Just trying to do the best to stay safe and get through. Uh, sobriety would be best. For victims of white supremacy racism, we will need our brain computer working in optimal condition. Uh, in addition to being sober, uh, I actually did find the uh, portion of the report that related to HBCUs. I'm going to read that and then I can get back to our wrap up because uh, this is our guest for Tuesday. Sarah Jo Peterson, white woman, white guests only. Uh, she says... She's talking about white people uh, in the great state of Alabama, Alabama. Uh, So after Sam Englehart was promoted to director of Alabama, Alabama Highway Department, he rerouted the freeway extension of I-65 to destroy the African-American neighborhood and business district of West Montgomery, in which Rosa Parks, E.D. Nixon and others lived and rerouted I-85 to separate HBCU Alabama State University from its residential neighborhood of distinguished African-American merchants, doctors, 
faculty and civil rights intelligentsia. Englehart intended specifically to target the home of Ralph David Abernathy, African-American civil rights leader and Baptist minister, as Abernathy wrote to President Kennedy. I'll stop there, but just not making it up. Send the report. Author will be on the program on Tuesday, and they did succeed. I think they did save the home of Ralph David Abernathy, but the rest of the black people were not that fortunate. Now, as I was saying, for many reasons, sobriety would be best in addition to being sober. If you got to go out, be very alert uh, about things that are happening. I mean, it's fisticuffs at the gas station and meth addicts doing crazy things at the gas station and grocery store period and uh, the mask changes and all that like it's wacky times Uh, be very alert uh, as you go out and about Uh, if people are being rowdy and hostile I would not engage Uh, I would be thinking this person may be armed they might have a whole group with them that is armed exit You can call enforcement officials, report, take a picture, whatever you need to do. But I would exit Uh, if you didn't leave prepared to kill and or die. Not a good time to be engaging random hostile strangers. All that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in trouble with another black person or in contact, excuse me, not in trouble, in contact with another black person. No name calling very very easy in the 10 stops for a reason we really should work as much as we can minimize conflict with other non-white people that is the spirit of victims guaranteed qualified no name calling cow signing up thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.